The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit CPIUSA.org. Hey, everybody. How is it going tonight? Welcome, 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 welcome. So glad to be here with all of you. Be sure to hit the like button. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. Be sure to hit the notifications bell. So glad to be here with all of you tonight. It's been a while. I, I had a week. I was gone for a little bit, but now I'm back. We're going to try to start streaming every night like we do. So welcome, everybody. So glad to be here. Um, it's going to be a great night. So I guess we'll just go right into the opening. And Spoken of the American century, I say that the century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A radical redistribution of economic power. I mean, we know that racism is just, is just a byproduct of capitalism. Everything would be all right if everything was put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the basket. We need a government of action. All right, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I think I'm going to bring the camera a little closer. Always good to have a nice close shot since I'm here in front of the bookshelf. A lot of fans really like this bookshelf. You can't have it every night, but tonight we've got the bookshelf. Welcome, everybody. Uh, so glad to be here with all of you. Uh, for the, those who may not be familiar, the way we do this show is I give my opening remarks. Um, and uh, during that time, I'm taking your super chats and I'm writing them down. And then I do the roll call where we find out who is on the other side of this camera, who is the audience. And I call you out as I see you, names and locations. And then after that, after we do the roll call, uh, then I answer your Super Chat questions for the rest of the night. That's how it works. So if you have something you would like me to speak about, now is the time to shoot me a Super Chat. And someone just did, John Mearsheimer. So there you go. I can talk about John Mearsheimer. I'm writing it down. That's how it works. John Mearsheimer. Thoughts. All right, wrote it down, and that's how it works. Throughout my opening remarks, I'll be writing down your Super Chat questions. So shoot, shoot me a Super Chat if there's something you want me to talk about. In the second half of the show, uh, that's how it works. And um, yeah, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell, and uh, make sure to share this wherever videos are shared, wherever videos are posted, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, uh, Bunker Chan, Prol Wiki, uh, wherever videos are posted or menaced by international communism, uh, one can share these videos. Uh, but anyway, anyway, folks, um, so I have been gone for a little bit. Um, I went away over the weekend. I went to the wedding, a lovely wedding. A good friend of mine goes way back, someone I used to work with. And I, I guess I still work with them, but not officially. You know, I mean, we collaborate some here and there. Um, all right, Felix Tajerski. Um, 
you know, someone. Um, well, thank you, Sammy, for the super chat. Always appreciated. Uh, went to the wedding in Mexico. Wedding was great. Wedding was tremendous. Just a beautiful service. Uh, you know, lovely, lovely group of friends there to support the bride. Lovely group of friends there to support the groom. Got to meet the person's family. It was great. Uh, air travel, not so fun. I don't know if people saw my tweets, but I do not want to get on a plane for a very, very, very long time after this. Um, uh, really don't want to get on a plane for a very, very long time. I, oh my goodness, not a single, I, I, I changed planes twice on the way in and three times on the way back. And, um, I do not ever want to get on a plane anytime again soon. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to, um, that's how these things work, but oh my goodness, that Mexico city airport and, and the airlines and, you know, there used to be a time that airlines were very, very good about things. You know, if something didn't go right, they'd change your flight. They'd give you like a bonus. Uh, not anymore, folks. Oh, my goodness. The airline folks, they don't care. The airports are crowded, full of people. Everyone's unhappy. Every flight is late. They strap you, strap you down. And, you know, and, you know, oh, my goodness. I do not want to get on a plane for a very long time. The age of COVID-19 air travel is not as fun. How did weakening of the USSR enable neoliberalism? That's a good question. Weakening of USSR enable neoliberalism. Very good question. And um, it was great. I mean, it was a great wedding, but but flying airplanes, not so much. But there you go. But now I'm back. Uh, I've gotten gotten some good rest, and I'm starting to get back into my normal routine of things and you all are part of that normal routine but how normal can things be when you know there's a war raging in ukraine and the u.s economy is falling apart and uh i mean it's like we haven't had a normal week uh, this whole year um speaking of which um before we before we get to the crux of what i'm talking about today um, if you're part of the Patreon community, if you are a Patreon supporter, I sent you all a message today. I apologize for the fact that we haven't done a patrons-only stream in a while. At the beginning of the last month, we were doing our CPI conference in Austin, and then at the beginning of this month, I was at my friend's wedding in, in Mexico, and we're going to do a patrons-only stream very soon. And on top of that, we're going to do some extra patrons-only streams, I think, to make up for what's been lost. And the Patreon folks are very, very, very important uh, to this community. This, this show really depends on the support we get on Patreon. So uh, if you want to help out this program, I would encourage you to actually sign up on Patreon. Uh, there's a link. Uh, I believe someone in the chat can post the link. And thank you, Cyrus, by the way. Thank you very much. Someone in the chat can post the link uh, to the Patreon. Let's try to give more love to those Patreon folks. Uh, we are on the brink of publishing a new book for the Center for Political Innovation. The way it works is anyone who's a Patreon uh, supporter gets one. So, um, you know, that's one of the perks of being a Patreon supporter is that you get a book. You get anytime the Center for Political Innovation publishes a new book, you get one. You are entitled to one. That's how it works. So there you go. All right. Do you think the wave of weed legalization is responding to popular desire of legalization of drugs as weapons against us? Hmm. Okay. Wave of weed legalization 
responding to popular desire drugs weapons against us wrote it down very good question um so yeah that's that's kind of that's all the business i wanted to talk about but um last week when i was on jimmy Dore's show um that was a tremendous interaction by the way i absolutely love uh absolutely love uh jimmy Dore, and to be able to collaborate with him was tremendous and there's just been an amazing positive reaction to that segment uh revolutionary blackout news is talking about it sabi sobs is talking about it um you know you know people are buying by the bundle uh people are buying bread tube serves imperialism and learning all about it uh contrapoint is in a panic about oh my god she's posting these panic tweets about oh my god people think i work for the cia and oh my goodness uh shots fired folks shots fired the bread tube community is in retreat and i wanted to just kind of go over something that you know is really important and i explained it very quickly as quickly as i possibly could in my interaction with jimmy Dore, and i've explained it in my book bread tube serves imperialism and i want to explain it now because we are in a crisis at this point u.s society is definitely in a crisis and yes we are in a period where what can accurately be called fascism is on the march that is true but fascism is not Donald Trump supporters. Fascism is not people who are racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic. Fascism is a stage in the breakdown of capitalism. And there is a scientific Marxist understanding of fascism. And many of you have probably heard all of this before. Many of you have probably heard all of this before, but it is so fundamental in what we talk about on these streams that I just have to repeat myself. So here goes. Capitalism is a system of production organized for profit. That's what capitalism is. Some people think capitalism means, you know, when you have rich and poor. No. Some people think capitalism is when, when one person owns the factory and another person works in the factory. No. Those things happen in capitalism, but that is not the essence of capitalism. Capitalism is a system of production that is organized for profit. As Frederick Engels put it, under capitalism, the means of production only function as preliminary transformation into capital, meaning that they don't make boots because people need to keep warm and keep their feet warm in the snow. They make boots because they make profits from those boots. The boot-making company has means of production. They have a boot factory. And that boot factory churns out boots so that the owner of the boot factory can make profits. Capitalism is production organized for profit. Under capitalism, we don't have houses because people need a place to live. We have houses so that landlords and banks and construction corporations can make profits. We don't have food under capitalism so that people can eat it. We have food so that agribusiness and big box stores and other corporations can make profits from selling it. Production 
for profit, not for social use. That is the nature of capitalism. Capitalism is production organized for profit. And capitalism is different than all other social systems that have existed in history. And the reason that it is different is because it creates a situation where poverty is created by abundance. Never before in human history have we had this problem of poverty created by abundance. In systems of the past, people were hungry because there wasn't enough food. There wasn't enough food, people were hungry. Systems of the past, if there was not enough housing being produced, people were homeless. But capitalism is unique. Under capitalism, people can become hungry because there's too much food. Under capitalism, people can become homeless because there's too much housing. Capitalism is production organized for profit. And it has a built-in problem, a built-in mechanism of self-destruction. And that's called overproduction. But the capitalist is constantly driving to produce as many goods as possible. The boot factory wants to make as many boots as they can. The, the, you know, the agribusiness wants to produce as much food as they possibly can. And in the process of driving to produce as much as they can, they also want to pay as little as they possibly can to produce it. They want to hire as few workers as possible to produce these boots and these shoes and these, you know, ice cream cones. They want to hire as few people in the process of production as possible. And the people that they do hire, they want to make them more easily replaced. They want to be able to replace them very easily. They want to be able to pay them as little as they possibly can. So the capitalist is constantly, constantly trying to drive down, drive down the amount he pays the worker. And to do this, he's advancing technology. He is working to try and advance technology, replace workers with machines, make jobs less skilled. But... In the process of doing this, he faces a very big problem, which is that the worker who he hires is also the consumer. And the worker cannot buy back what he produces. Fascism's primary purpose is to smash communism and socialism, working class power, in order to maintain the rule of profit. Very good, David. I agree, and we'll talk about that. The worker is also the consumer. And if you drive the wages of the worker down and you reduce the role of the worker in production, soon you cannot sell the products that you have produced. And the market becomes glutted with products that cannot be sold. You have a situation where the stores are full of food. All kinds of food is being produced, but people can't afford to buy it. 
you have a situation where the market is full of iPhones and iPads and all kinds of advanced technology, but people can't afford to purchase it. You have a situation where there are all kinds of empty houses and all kinds of homeless people who cannot afford to live in them. This is the built-in problem of capitalism, and it is always there, the problem of overproduction, that the capitalist wants to maximize his profits, but the only way he can maximize his profits is by making the working class poorer, and then the working class cannot afford to buy the products he has driven so hard to produce. And as a result, you have frequent economic crises. And it used to be every few years under capitalism. During the good old days, the gilded age that libertarians like, this happened all the time. Every couple of years, every one or two years, you would have a, a situation like this. They call it a panic uh, or a slowdown or a slump. And the economy just comes to a grinding halt because too much has been produced. And suddenly you have a crisis of mass unemployment. You have a crisis of homelessness and hunger because of too much production. Nowadays, the capitalists have developed all kinds of mechanisms to try and stabilize, stabilize the economy. They've created the Federal Reserve Bank. They've created stock ownership corporations. They've created the FDIC. They've created all kinds of mechanisms to try and keep the economy rolling ahead and not have frequent gluts of overproduction. The whole boom-bust cycle of, of the market is based on this problem of overproduction. However, every so often you have a mass crisis of overproduction, and that is spawned by great technological innovations. When computers came along, it created a big problem in capitalist production. You can go back further, though. Right, long before there were computers, World War One came after many great technological leaps. All kinds of great technological leaps had happened. The world economy, especially in Europe, was speeding ahead. All kinds of goods were being produced more efficiently than ever. People had radios, steam engines, and all kinds of technology was being invented. And so you had an economic crisis that was only resolved with World War One. World War II was largely a result of Henry Ford. Henry Ford and his innovations in assembly line production. In the 1920s, people said they proved that capitalism was permanently going to have growth. They said, Ford has overtaken Karl Marx. They said, Henry Ford, with his efficient capitalist production, has proved has proved that Marx was completely wrong because he's created an efficient form of assembly line production. The way Henry Ford is making his Model T Ford cars, this all proves that capitalism can be so efficient, we're going to have economic growth forever. But then you had the Great Depression, and the Great Depression was only resolved by World War II and mass destruction. We are now facing a huge massive technological revolution. 3D printers, artificial intelligence are completely driving the worker out of the assembly line. The role of the worker in production is astronomically smaller 
than it used to be, and it's getting smaller each day. And when you have a huge technological leap, this problem of overproduction becomes greatly exacerbated. And the economy comes to a grinding halt, and you have millions of people, millions of people who cannot buy back the products that have been produced. You have all kinds of problems. And that is what we are in. We are in a long term capitalist crisis spawned by the computer revolution. Computers can trade stocks better than humans can. They can play chess better than humans can. Pretty much, pretty much, capitalists can get machines to do almost anything. And this creates a situation where you're going to have a long-term economic crisis. And it is in a long-term economic crisis that the capitalists begin to fight with each other because they need the government to step in and take dramatic measures to get the economy moving again. The market is not going to naturally fix this crisis. There are millions and millions of people who no longer have a place at the assembly line. The global economy can't handle all the technological leaps that have happened because under capitalism, your only value as a worker is renting yourself out to your boss. You sell your labor power. That's your value under capitalism is your ability to sell your labor power. And so millions of people have no place at the global assembly line and are hungry and are angry. Workers in the first world are seeing their living standards dramatically decrease. Workers in the developing world are starving to death, especially since the pandemic. There's been massive rise in malnutrition in, in the developing word, world. And so the capitalists, they need dramatic action to be taken to stabilize the economy. However, they want the dramatic action to be taken on their behalf, not the behalf of the other capitalists. Capitalism is a competitive system, you have to remember. And the capitalists have different interests among them. Some of them make profits from oil. Some of them make profits from hotel chains. Some of them make profits from selling you know, cell phones and smartphones. Some of them make profits by having social media apps. Some of them make profits by having airlines. Some of them make profits by manufacturing cars. The capitalists have competing interests among themselves. And they all want the crisis to be resolved. They all want the economy to keep churning ahead and people to be able to buy their products. And that's what they want. They all want to continue making profits. But, but, at the same time, they don't want to be the ones to have to pay for it. They want the other capitalists to be the ones that pay for it. And so the capitalists begin fighting among themselves over which capitalists get to control the government and which capitalists get kicked around in order to stabilize the economy. One faction of the ruling class tries to seize control of the government and use it to kick the ass of the other capitalists to get the economy rolling again. And another section of capitalists, they struggle to seize control of the government and they want to kick the ass of the other capitalists and use use that to get the economy rolling again. 
the capitalists begin fighting among, among themselves because the rate of profits has decreased. And so the capitalists are scrambling for power, trying to use the capitalist state to stabilize the capitalist economy. And that process where one faction in the ruling class battles for power against another and they want some kind of strongman authoritarian government that will act to stabilize the economy, that will put themselves above the rest of the capitalist class. This is called Bonapartism, right? Karl Marx was living in France in 1851 and Louis Bonaparte, the grandson, or no, I think the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, Louis Bonaparte took power in a military coup and declared himself the dictator of France, the military dictator, and he used the government to stabilize the economy. And Karl Marx observed this up close and he wrote about what it was, Bonapartism. And you can have progressive Bonapartists. Louis Bonaparte was a progressive Bonapartist in a lot of ways. He built hospitals for poor people. He enacted uh, protections for workers on the job. But he also killed a lot of communist revolutionaries. He was a Bonapartist who was somewhat progressive, but overall he wasn't a revolutionary. He wasn't a socialist. However, you can have what they call reactionary Bonapartism, where you can have a Pinochet, or you can have, uh, you know, you can have, uh, you know, a Mussolini or a Hitler, and this is also Bonapartism. However, fascism is a specific form of Bonapartism. It's a special kind of Bonapartism which is rooted in Malthusianism. And what is Malthusianism? Malthusianism is the idea that the problems of capitalism are caused by there being too many people. Marx said that the problem is production organized for profit. The reason we have these gluts of overproduction and workers can't buy back the products they produce is because of production organized for profit. Well, around the time that Marx was alive, a little before Marx's time, there was a guy named Robert Thomas Malthus. And Robert Thomas Malthus said, the problems of capitalism are caused not by production for profit, but by overpopulation. There are too many people in the world. And if you have too many people in the world, suddenly there's a lot of hungry people. The food supply does not keep up with the population growth. There's too many people in the world. And so you have to, you have to drive the population down. And thank you, my good friend, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Shout out to you. A longtime friend of mine. Solidarity to you from Miami. What a hard town to be a communist in, Miami. And they just say, oh, you need to drive the population down, right? And Malthusianism is the ideology of some of the most reactionary capitalists in the world, the British Empire and the Rockefellers and some of the most evil capitalists. They said, yes, there's just too many people in the world. We need to reduce the population. And so fascism is a Bonapartist movement that seeks to stabilize the capitalist system by exterminating people, by driving down living conditions, and by degrowing. That's what fascism is. When the Nazis took power, they started exterminating people. They started first with the disabled people. Uh, they First, they rounded up all the communists and revolutionaries and put them in in like prison camps. And then after about two years, after they'd kind of destroyed the labor movement, they started letting those folks out. And then they started rounding up the disabled people and exterminating them. 
what did they call them? They called them useless eaters. They actually had a propaganda poster and it had a, a man in a wheelchair on it. It said, this man costs the German taxpayer so much money every year. And that was their justification for exterminating disabled people. And then they started exterminating other people. Eventually, we have the horrors of the Holocaust rooted in the Malthusian mindset, all arguing that they needed to degrow and arguing also that in order to uh, make a better society, they argued, we need to start breeding people, right? We need to start breeding people. And, and that's called eugenics, right? And they argued that, uh, that, that communism and communist revolutions were caused by some genetic defect in the Jews. So they started, they exterminated the Jews. Millions of Jews perished in the gas chambers, right? And they argued that, uh, that Slavic people and Poles were just inherently inferior. So they started exterminating them. And, and again, eugenics, Malthusianism, degrowth, this is all the nature of what fascism is. Fascism is an attempt to stabilize capitalism with mass destruction. And in order to carry it out, the capitalists will build some kind of mass movement. Generally, people don't want to go around exterminating other people. So in order to get people to do that, you have to get them kind of brainwashed. You have to build a, a mass movement. You have to kind of hypnotize them and get them angry and get them full of hate. And, and so you have to build kind of a mass mobilization among the population, get them psyched up to start exterminating people. And that's what fascism is. Fascism is an attempt to overcome the problems of capitalism with degrowth and destruction. Um, and it's a very ugly thing. It's a very, very ugly thing. And we are living in a period where fascism is on the march. And fascism is coming from, from Bill Gates. And fascism is coming from George Soros. And fascism is coming from, you know, the Rockefellers. And fascism is, is coming from the Morgans and the DuPonts. Fascism is coming from the ultra-rich. And basically, right now, we see the ultra-rich have realized that their economy is unstable and, ins and is not working. They've realized that, that there's no way out of this without mass destruction. John Podesta, I believe, came out and said we need only about, what, 600 million people in the world, right? That's what he said, right? The population is over 6 billion, but he wants to drive it down to 600 million. They're, they're openly thinking, how can we drive the population down? How can we cull the herd and get rid of the useless eaters? And the pandemic came along, and the COVID is real. It's not a hoax. It's real. Right? COVID-19 is absolutely real. I had it. I know it's real. COVID came along, and they said, this is our opportunity. We can use the pandemic to start to take Bonapartist measures and stabilize the economy on our behalf. And we can use it, use it to kind of demolish the lower level capitalists and solidify our position at the top. And then we can start calling the herd and reducing the population and trying to use the state to stabilize the unstable system of capitalism. And that's what happened. The pandemic is absolutely real, but they saw it as an opportunity for their great reset. They openly want to reduce consumption. They want workers to not have as comfortable of a lifestyle as they have. They want living standards across the planet to go down. That's what they want. 
and they want the population to vastly decrease. And in Africa, they are starving people by the millions. There have been millions of malnutrition-related deaths in Africa since the pandemic. And in Afghanistan, Joe Biden stole all their money and froze, froze all of Afghanistan's money in the middle of a freezing cold winter. And, and there were many deaths of malnutrition in Afghanistan caused by Joe Biden. Joe Biden is announcing there's going to be food shortages in the United States. That was the latest announcement. Joe Biden is preventing Russia from exporting the fertilizer they send all over the world. And there's going to be food shortages in India. There's going to be food shortages in Brazil and in Africa as a result of this because Russian fertilizer won't be exported. And they say, hey, in their minds, you have to understand this is about solving the problem of capitalism. They say that human growth must end and we must drive down living standards. We must degrow in order to stabilize capitalism. And this is the mindset of the ultra-rich, whereas there's plenty of lower-level capitalists, fracking companies, hotel chain owners, you know, um, Betsy DeVos, Koch brothers, people like that, that are right-wingers. They're right-wing reactionaries with more of a libertarian outlook. And their view is that uh, they don't want the government to stabilize the economy, put them out of business, secure the monopoly of the ultra-rich. They want libertarianism. They want open free market capitalism. So they think that the Rockefellers and Bill Gates and the Carnegies and the DuPonts are all communists. They are against any measure to stabilize the economy. They're libertarian, and they view this as an attack on their independence as lower-level capitalists. The pandemic has been amazing for Jeff Bezos. The pandemic has been amazing for Bill Gates. The pandemic has been amazing for the Walton family that own Walmart. It's been amazing for the Kroc family that owns McDonald's. But it hasn't been so good for the lower-level capitalists. My pillow, my pillow. That guy has been totally screwed, and so have the owners of Hobby Lobby, and so has uh, so has uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy who owns uh, the um, what's his name? He owns uh, Home Depot. Bernie Marcus, and there is a divide in the ruling class. The ultra rich, the ultra rich have a liberal outlook. The ultra rich have a liberal outlook, more or less. Right. They didn't like Donald Trump. They want a kind of global measure to stabilize the economy. They see COVID as an opportunity to secure their monopoly. Meanwhile, the lower level capitalists, they see this as an attack on their very existence. And they have an ultra right wing worldview. They think that they think that the worker, you know, the, the, the labor movement is evil. They hate communism and Marxism, but they also hate the higher level capitalists. And so there's a fight going on. And the synthetic left, the Social Democrats, BreadTube, DSA, Young Turks, they are the foot soldiers of Bill Gates and the Walton family and, you know, the ultra rich, the Joe Biden faction, the neocons. That's who they work for. Meanwhile, the lower level capitalists, uh, they are rallying around people like Trump and people like Nigel Farage and the new right of Europe because they are trying to defend themselves from the stabilization and Bonapartist mechanisms uh, being imposed by the ultra rich. And this is a fight in the ruling class.
Now, at the end of the day, neither of these factions has the interests of American working families at heart. Bill Gates wants to drive your living standards down. He wants to make you poorer. He wants you to uh, to degrow. He wants most of us to be dead. He wants to, you know, he wants to call the herd and reduce the population. On the other hand, uh, you know, the uh, Hobby Lobby and My Pillow guy, uh, he wants to not have to pay you a minimum wage. He wants you to not get any food stamps. He wants you to basically be told, you're on your own, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, it's the American way, make it or break it. Both of these factions, at this point, are mobilizing against the proletariat. Right? The, the libertarian far right that thinks that the pandemic is communism, they want to drive your living standards down with free market neoliberal economics, and it appears that now among the ultra-rich, even though they were pushing neoliberalism, they're now moving towards some kind of fascistic, neo-Keynesian, Malthusian economics. Great reset. They're trying to use, use the pandemic as an opportunity to secure their monopoly, crush their competitors, uh, and become, become the dominant faction so they can gradually reduce the population. However, there's a wild card in all of this. And this is what changes everything. This is the wild card that changes everything. In 1917, well over 100 years ago, something happened. A country, and actually many countries, broke free from capitalism. The Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 happened and created a socialist society in the Soviet Union. Um, all right. Uh, yes, I, I'll talk about that. Sorry. Bush co-opted. Soviet Union emerged, and this was a country that had been dominated by American banks and French banks and British banks and kept poor. Uh, you know, every time you had a strong leader in Russia, like Catherine the Great, the, the British and, and the Americans would conspire against them and try to stop them. They wanted Russia to be an impoverished, backward agrarian country. And they worked very hard to keep it that way. And Russia's oil resources were controlled by British bankers. And Russia was, you know, it was an empire. It was the Russian empire, but it was very much a subservient, subservient country held back by Western capitalism. But in 1917, the Russian Revolution happened and the Soviet Union came into existence. And you had the emergence of socialism. And socialism is a system where production is not organized for profit. Socialism is a system where the banks and the factories and the major centers of economic power are organized to, to serve public good and not the profits of a few. And in the Soviet Union, they had five year economic plans where the state got together and said, we need to produce this many schools, we need to produce this many hospitals, we need to build power plants, and they did it. And during the 1930s, the Soviet Union went from being one of the poorest countries in the world to being an industrial superpower. They wiped out illiteracy. They electrified the whole country. They had the biggest power plant, the biggest hydroelectrical power plant in the world, the Dnieper Dam. It was in Ukraine. They built the Dnieper Dam, the biggest hydropower, hydroelectrical power plant in the world. They produced more steel 
than any other country in the world. They produce more tractors than any other country in the world. They, they were building train car systems and tramways, and they just raised that country up into a mighty superpower. And then the Nazis invaded, and they defeated the Nazis, and they rebuilt the country again. And they started rebuilding Eastern Europe, and countries all across Eastern Europe got electricity and running water and literacy and universities. And with socialism, you had a whole section of the planet that was starting to break out of the capitalist system. They didn't have this problem of production organized for profit. They didn't have a boom-bust economy. They had an economy where a government that had come out of a popular revolution controlled the economy and rationally organized the economy so that growth was no longer held back. China had a revolution, 1949. Cuba had a revolution. Libya had a revolution in 1969. Syria and Iraq had revolutions. The Iranian revolution in 1979. You had all these countries around the world start, have started breaking out of capitalism. And a lot of these countries have a market sector. They have, they have people, you know, capitalists who make profit, but they're not in command. The economy is not left up to the dictates of the invisible hand. You have a revolutionary government that controls the capitalists and forces them to work in the interests of society overall. Under Russian capitalism, the corporate interests hold monopoly political power. All right. And, and so you have countries, you know, China, for example. Now in China, there are a lot of capitalists. There are a lot of capitalist companies, a lot of private stores, private restaurants, private tech companies, private, you know, you know, clothing lines, etc. But at the end of the day, they're not functioning under capitalism because at any time the Chinese Communist Party can show up and say, you're doing this and they have no choice. They have to do it. They have no rights. The capitalists have absolutely no rights. They are forced to do what the state central planners want done. And yes, most of the time they might just be functioning according to the market. But that changes in a heartbeat. And the Chinese Communist Party shows up and says, you're doing this, you're producing this, you're going to stop selling your stocks, you're going to move your factory over here. And they have absolutely no rights. No rights. Even though there are, there's market forces at work, that market is not free. The boot of the 90 million members of the Chinese Communist Party is hanging over the head of the Chinese economy, forcing it to continue growing. And the anarchy of production, the chaos of the market has not held back the Chinese economy. The Chinese economy has continued speeding ahead because profits are not in command. And that is why China, despite having a big market sector, they still have a lot of state-run industries, state-run banks, about 50%. But regardless, the private companies are not free either because the state controls the means of production. They have executed capitalists. Billionaires in China have gotten the death penalty for going against what the Chinese Communist Party says. So you have China and its allies, Iran, Russia, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua. You have countries around the world that have broken out of the domination of capitalism. And you have governments that are, have emerged from popular revolutions that control the means of production and force the economies to keep growing and keep expanding despite, despite the irrationality and the breakdown of Western capitalism. 
And that is the wild card. That is the wild card that makes all of this, all of this, you know, so, uh, so, sorry about that. I'm used to streaming on my phone, so I'm not used to having my phone go off. There you go. Now it's on silent. And that is the problem that, that makes all of this wild. And this ultimately means that there is an opening. There is an opening. If we were stuck picking between Bill Gates and Mike Lindell, there would not be an opening. But the opening is the socialist countries and the anti-imperialist bloc that exists. That's the opening. And so ultimately, the job of those of us who believe in socialism in the United States is to get working people to understand that their enemy is not in Iran or in Venezuela or in Russia or in China. Their enemy is on Wall Street. Their enemy is in the Pentagon. Their enemy is in Silicon Valley. Their enemy is in Langley. That is who the enemy of the American people is. The enemy of the American people is in the White House. The enemy of the American people is in the U.S. Capitol building. It is the capitalist ruling class and their puppets that are the enemies of America's working families. Meanwhile, the people around the world that are fighting for their freedom and have broken out of the domination of Western capitalism and begun the process of reorganizing the economy and lifting themselves up out of poverty. It is those folks that are the allies of America's working families. And ultimately, what is needed, oh, I'll check out your Galloway interview. Thank you. Galloway is great. Ultimately, what is needed is to build an anti-monopoly coalition. Those who are aligned with Russia and China and Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua and Iran and those in the working class and the labor movement who are fighting on the job, those Amazon workers that have been winning great victories against Jeff Bezos and those small business owners who are getting crushed, crushed under the boot heels of the big monopolists during the pandemic. At the end of the day, a united front, an anti-monopoly coalition must be constructed. An anti-monopoly coalition must be constructed to break the United States out of production organized for profit. We need a popular government that serves the people. A popular government that serves the people based in revolutionary community organizing and revolutionary upsurge of participation of the people. We need, we need a government of action that can control the means of production. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. And if a government in Washington, D.C. can be established, a government that would stand up to the corporations, a government that would stand up to the big banks and monopolies, if such a government could emerge, that government could start taking swift, decisive action to improve the lives of working people. And the Center for Political Innovation is not a political party. We do not run or endorse candidates. We do not campaign for people. We are a think tank. And we have put forward four policy proposals that could be enacted, that, a, that a, an elected leader could enact that would improve the lives of working people. The first, a mass mobilization to rebuild the country. 
pave the roads of the country, repave the roads of the country. New schools, new universities, new power plants, new water treatment facilities so our children aren't drinking water contaminated with lead, new hospitals so people have medical access, new universities so we're once again churning out the greatest engineers and scientists, a high-tech reboot of the country, hire the unemployed, and rebuild the United States of America. Hire the unemployed, the young people stuck in a cycle of short-term, low-wage jobs. Put bright green uniforms on them. Hire them, give them union wages, and dispatch them around the country to rebuild the United States, much like Roosevelt did with the Works Progress Administration. Rebuild America, a mass program for the reconstruction of the country. The second policy we put forward, public ownership of our natural resources, oil, gas, coal, timber, all of the wealth that comes from America's soil, from the ground beneath our feet, should be public property. And the, the budget, the, the budget of the country should come from the wealth made from our oil. Big corporations get rich off our oil right now. Big corporations get rich off our coal and our natural gas and our timber. But the wealth of America should instead go into the public budget so we can build hospitals and schools and universities. We should control our natural resources. Third policy we put forward is the public ownership of banking, the nationalization of banking. Credit should be strategically assigned by the state. Right? Let the federal government create a great national bank that would lend money strategically based on what was in the needs of the country. Let every state have a state bank that would lend money strategically. Let there be local banks in, you know, controlled by communities at a community level. Put the credit, the assigning of credit, the loaning of money, not into the hands of private for-profit lenders, but into the hands of communities and of the state so that they can strategically assign credit based on unlimited growth and ensuring that there can be growth in the community. Furthermore, enact an economic bill of rights, the right to a job, the right to housing, the right to education. Those four policies, they would not be overturning capitalism, but in order to enact them, so much capitalist power would have to be pushed back. All right. Okay. Write it down. So much capitalist power would have to be pushed back in order to enact these policies that you would have to have a leader who came into power with a mass movement behind them to carry out these policies. In order to enact these kinds of policies, you would have to have millions of people on the street who would have the back of that leader in order to enact these policies. You'd have to have a Hugo Chavez. You'd have to have a... Uh, uh, you know, a, a Nicolas Maduro or a, a Daniel Ortega. You'd have to have a strong leader who led some kind of mass movement in order to enact these kinds of policies. In order to enact those four economic policies that would dramatically change the economy, you would have to have the ability to push back so hard against capitalist power. Wouldn't be an easy thing to do. 
And ultimately, enacting those policies would lead to a situation where the nature of the military would have to change. You couldn't do that with the Pentagon brass. They would overthrow somebody trying to enact these policies. You couldn't do that, you know, with, with the FBI and the CIA as they are. They would mobilize to, to assassinate some kind of leader who enacted these policies. So you would have to change the nature of the state. Might have to be a new constitution. There'd have to be a new military force, a new policing agency, a new intelligence service. The nature of the state would have to change in order to enact these kinds of policies. The capitalist state would not be able to carry out these reforms. The state power, the bodies of armed men, the FBI, the CIA, the Pentagon, the military, those forces would get in the way of any such dramatic changes. So the nature of the state would have to change. And once a new state emerged, a new state apparatus, a new military, a new policing agencies, a new intelligence service, once you had a new state, at that point, you could move ahead and implement a fully socialist economy, an economy organized to serve the people. You would have a government that was strong enough and based in communities that it could control the means of production. And capitalism could be defeated. And you would move towards socialism. And that, that is the Center for Political Innovation's vision. Our role is not to go around campaigning for people. Our role is not to go around screaming revolution. Our role is to put out policy solutions, real policies that could be enacted, things that the government could do but won't do, and use these demands, these programs, these programmatic demands, these transitional demands, these these policy solutions, use these policy solutions, use these policy solutions to raise the consciousness of the people. How does the CCP incentivize capitalists to grow and become successful? All right. All right, wrote it down. That is our role. We want to put forward real policy solutions that will raise the consciousness of the people. And that's what we aim to do. We aim to expose the lies of the war makers and imperialists. We aim to call out the policies that are destroying the country. And we aim to get American working people to, to understand where their economic interests lie and to demand a government of action that will fight for working families. And that is the role the Center for Political Innovation plays. And yes, we want to develop a core of dedicated people who understand the science of Marxism and historical and dialectical materialism. And we also want to engage in mass agitation to those who couldn't understand such a thing. We want to get the, those who couldn't understand such a thing to, to understand that uh, why couldn't you know, the government rebuild the country? Why couldn't the government, uh, you know, put natural gas and oil under public ownership? There is agitation in the form of policy solutions, and there is education among the advanced. And we want to build a block of people who understand what the problem is. We want to engage in education 
We want to develop po po uh, policy solutions. Um, you know, that's what we want to do. That's the Center for Political Innovation. So this may be a bit of a basic wrap to a lot of you who are watching, but to a lot of you who are new, this is not uh, basic. This is maybe the first time you're hearing this. But there are a number of things that have happened this week. A number of things that have happened this week that really point to exactly everything I've said. First one, I don't have a clip for you. I'm just going to read to you. This is a news item. It was on RT. Make of it what you will. Headline, fake agents arrested after bribing their way into Biden's inner circle. Four Secret Service agents bribed with gifts and apartments have been put on leave. Hader Shor Ali and Ariane Tar Tarzada have been arrested for impersonating Department of Homeland Security agents after two years spent showering Secret Service agents with gifts, including guns and free apartments. They were charged on Wednesday with one count of false impersonating of an officer of the U.S., according to court filings. Four Secret Service officials and First Lady Jill Biden's detail who allegedly accepted gifts from the phony DHS agents also have been placed on administrative leave. Sher Ali and Taharzada have, had lavished them with gifts, including a rent-free penthouse apartments, high-end electronics, police equipment, a drone, and the use of official government vehicles, among other goodies. Taharzada had officially offered to buy a $2,000 assault rifle for one of the agents assigned to the First Lady's security detail, according to the indictment. The two men had apparently conned not only the First Lady, Jill Biden's Secret Service detail, but also the management of the building they were living in into believing they were federal agents investigating the January 6th Capitol riot, among other crimes. As a result, they got free use of a $40,000 worth luxury real estate for their own use that is that, and that of the Secret Service agents. Asked by the investigators why the phony agents were not paying rent, a representative of the building responded with a single word, government. Management at the Tishman Spire were so convinced the men were feds that they had provided the pair with access to surveillance cameras and codes needed to access doors in the building. They also had a binder full of information on fellow building residents who, aside from Secret Service agents and other federal employees, included congressional aides and advisors. The fake agents even pretended to recruit a building resident to be part of their task force, requiring the person to submit to being shot with an airsoft rifle to evaluate their pain tolerance. I guess I could keep reading. There's a couple more paragraphs. You know, there's something going on here, folks. There's something going on here. There is something going on here. There is something going on here. I told you at the beginning, not at the beginning, in the middle, about the capitalists fighting with each other. We now understand there were two individuals who pretended to work for the Department of Homeland Security. They had lots of money and resources, and they managed to maneuver their way into the president's inner circle. They managed to compromise the Secret Service agents who are protecting Joe Biden's wife, Jill Biden. Folks, that's a big deal. And that doesn't just happen. 
Look at Biden's approval ratings right now. Look at January 6th and what happened. There is a bonapartist struggle going on within the ruling class. And there are factions in the ruling class that want Biden gone. When you are compromising the secret service of the president, and you have all kinds of resources to do it, something's going on here, folks. Something's going on. You know, and they're going to say it's just incompetence. No, folks, something's going on. Just like with January 6th, something's going on. Something's going on. January 6th didn't just happen. It was allowed to happen. And this, I am convinced, is not just Secret Service agents being stupid. There were, these people had friends on the inside that were helping them. I mean, this, I, I look at the facts of the case, and it looks to me like the American deep state is fighting with itself. There are Bonapartist struggles within the ruling class right now. I've told you about the Kamala Harris, you know, where she came from, who she is, the faction that backed her, how there's all kinds of factions in the ruling class that are trying to maneuver against her. There are fights among the capitalists right now. And if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, we're basically, we have our leaders toying with World War III. That's what they're doing, right? When they call for a no-fly zone, that means shooting down Russian planes. That means World War III, folks. That means nuclear war with Russia. There is a fight among the capitalists right now. And it appears that the faction that wanted to get rid of Biden got somewhat close to him. Now, which faction is it? Is it rivals in his own party? Is it folks that are loyal to Trump? There's something going on here. Look at that story. I'm sorry. If, I mean, if you look at that and you think, oh, well, it's just, I guess, these, you know, U.S. Secret Service is incompetent and corrupt. No, 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 no. There are divisions in the ruling class right now. And it's terrifying. It is absolutely terrifying to look at this. But this kind of thing doesn't happen. This kind of thing doesn't happen. I don't know who, and I'm not going to try and tell you who, who did this, but this kind of thing, you look at the details of that story, this kind of thing does not happen. The capitalists are fighting with each other. There is a big fight among the ruling class right now because the country's in shambles. The country's in shambles. It's falling apart. The economy is bad. Inflation is up. People can't afford food. People can't afford gasoline. They're fighting amongst themselves. The capitalists are fighting amongst themselves as the rate of profit is dropping. And this, this, this is representative of that. I don't know what the motivation of these people was to penetrate the Secret Service protecting the First Lady. But I can assure you it, it wasn't just to make money. It wasn't just to get access to a luxury apartment. Something's going on here, folks. It's not for me to figure out. Not even for me to really speculate about exactly what is going on. But something is going on. Something is definitely going on. Something's going on. Another story I wanted to share with you, right? They've been lying to us throughout this whole Ukraine crisis. They have been lying and lying and lying and lying. And then they lie again and then they lie again and then they lie again. All right. And it just, it drives me up the wall. They've been lying throughout this whole Ukraine crisis. You know, they told us about this like hero of, of Kiev who was shooting down planes. Well, that turned out to be bullshit. And they told us about Snake Island. Oh, the heroes of Snake Island. And they all got killed. That turned out to be bullshit, right? Interagency divisions right now is the Pentagon not corroborating the Bucha. Right. Very good. All right. Right. 
they keep accusing Russia of committing horrendous massacres. And then you look into the details and it didn't happen. Uh, you know, I mean, there's just so much lying going on, right? We have Victoria Newland on the floor of Congress talking about the bio labs. And now they try to tell us the bio labs aren't real. They lied to us. They said that Hunter Biden's laptop, oh, that's just Russian propaganda. Now they admit that that's real. They have been lying and 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 lying. And now they won't have a UN meeting to investigate the Buka massacre. They won't have a UN meeting about it. Why? Well, you know, because the facts don't add up. They have been lying and 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 lying. Meanwhile, Russia told us that Hunter Biden's laptop was real, and it was. Russia told us that there were bio labs in Ukraine, and there are. Russia seems to be telling the truth pretty consistently. And why is Russia telling the truth? Because Russia is just so full of virtue and they're good people? No, because everything Russia says is immediately met with suspicion. If someone is constantly accusing you of lying, you are going to bend over backwards to tell the truth. Whereas anything that U.S. officials fart out, anything that Joe Biden farts out, mainstream media believes. So they get away with it. People lie when they can get away with it. People tell the truth when they're constantly held in suspicion. Whatever Russia says is constantly accused of being, that's a conspiracy theory. That's fake news. And so as a result of that, Russia bends over backwards to prove everything they say. They prevented, they, they showed us documents about the bio labs, signed signature. They, they bent over backwards not to talk about, they, they've known about these bio labs for years. They didn't say anything till now because they wanted to make sure it was absolutely true. Meanwhile, U.S. media is making up massacres that didn't happen. U.S. media is making up people that don't exist. I mean, you know, they've been saying the Azov battalion isn't real. And then Zelensky admits it on Fox News and said it's real. We know who's telling the truth here. Russia is telling the truth. And they're telling the truth because no matter what they say, they say, don't believe it, Russia said it. So they're going out of their way to tell the truth. Meanwhile, the United States is just lying and 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 lying. Because no matter what they say, no matter what they say, US media believes it as if it's fact. Oh, the US government said it, it must be true. But now there was a moment on MSNBC that just happened that should show you how ridiculous American media is. Forgive me if you've already seen this, this tweet, you know, this, this floating around Twitter. This was a moment that just blew my mind. When I saw this clip, my head wanted to explode. This is why you, you can't trust American media. I'm about to show you something that this would never have happened. In the 1980s, this wouldn't have happened. In the 1960s, this wouldn't have happened. Anyone who knows anything about the role of the press all that rhetoric about free press and unbiased and holding leaders of accountable. Anyone who knows anything about that, anyone who's ever taken a journalism class should see this clip and be full of rage because this shows you exactly how screwed up U.S. media is. Watch. I did not fabricate this clip. This is a real clip from American television. Using intelligence to fight an information war and doing it to Russia for months now, and it's working. NBC News national security correspondent Ken Delaney and live in Washington. Uh, Ken, I want to start uh, by giving people an example of what this is so they know what we're talking about. Take a look. They're also suggesting that Ukraine has biological and chemical weapons in Ukraine. That's a clear sign he's considering using both of those. Can, can you explain to our viewers what was going on there and what NBC News has learned about that claim this week from three different U.S. officials? 
Yeah, that was a great example of what we're talking about. That was based on declassified intelligence, but we're also told the intelligence wasn't very clear about what exactly was going on. And they decided to disclose it as a way of deterring uh, Russia from doing that and putting the world on notice that this could happen. And that's really, that's what's going on here, the big picture. This is an unprecedented use of declassified intelligence. We've never seen this level of information warfare before from the U.S. government. And what they're doing is they're trying to preempt the Russians, get ahead of Russian disinformation, even mess with Vladimir Putin's brain, as one person put it, uh, leave him off balance to sh- try to show that the United States knows what Russia is up to and is going to get ahead of it. Um, it's it's really rather remarkable. Another example was when they announced that Russia had gone to China uh, to ask for help with, what, with getting some weapons. That hasn't come to pass yet, and it was almost a way of putting China on notice. Hey, we know what's going on here. Don't let this happen. So really interesting and unprecedented yeah. use of intelligence here. All right. So I don't know if you just caught that. Joe Biden lied. Joe Biden said that they thought Russia was going to carry out chemical attacks when they weren't. U.S. media said that Russia had gone to China to get weapons from China when they hadn't. They lied. And instead of going, wow, our leaders aren't telling us the truth. We should hold them accountable. They said, wow, isn't that genius? Joe Biden lied to all of us. He got up in front of the whole world and said things that weren't true. What a guy. Isn't that brilliant? This is insane. The job of the media is to try and get our leaders to tell the truth, to try and hold them accountable. But MSNBC is running clips about, hey, just so you know, Joe Biden just accused Russia of something they were never going to do. But that's good. That's great because it's like spy stuff. It's like disinformation. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, you know, Joe Biden said that uh, that R- Russia was going to buy these weapons from China, and they didn't. And that's just brilliant. They might as well announce, don't ever believe anything we say. Because their job, as the media, their job is to try and hold Joe Biden accountable. No matter who's the president, they're supposed to hold them accountable, make sure they're telling the truth. They don't do that. In fact, not only do they let them get away with their lives, after it comes out that they lied, they get on there and go, it's genius. It's so, isn't it great that they lied like that? I mean, it's strategic. It's information warfare. When you turn on CNN, when you turn on MSNBC, when you turn on Fox News, you are not watching news. You are watching information warfare against your brain. That's what you are watching. They are lying. That, that clip, they, Joe Biden said false things. And instead of calling him out for saying false things in the middle of an international crisis, they're going, wow, isn't it genius? Because they're on the same team, because they're fighting the same information warfare. This should should fill anybody. The most liberal person should be angry about this. The most standard liberal person should go, wait a second. The job of the press, the job of the press is not to enable our leaders to lie, not to do segments about how genius it is. When our leaders lie, the job of the press is to find out if our leaders are telling the truth and hold them accountable. Not anymore. That was MSNBC just announcing there. Don't believe anything they say, because if it's a lie and they think it'll benefit U.S. foreign policy or intelligence agencies, they'll tell it. When Joe Biden got up there and lied, they thought that was great. They thought that was great. This is utterly horrifying. This is utterly horrifying. And it walks hand in hand with 
you know, Candace Owens, who's a conservative who I don't agree with. I vehemently disagree with a lot of what she says, anti-communist, right-wing, awful in so many ways, pro-imperialist, pro-Zionist. But one thing about Candace Owens, she got up there and she referred, oh my gosh, to Ukraine as a corrupt country. And so she was called out for repeating Russian talking points. And she said, I'm, I'm quoting the New York Times. Quoting the Panama Papers, they said Ukraine was a corrupt country. Well, yeah, but you can't say that because that feeds an agenda. In, in media, you're supposed to put your bias at the door. You are supposed to not be pushing an agenda. But these people are so blatantly pushing an agenda that they will get on TV and say, isn't it brilliant that the U.S. government lied? I mean, my God, what else did they lie about? I mean, I mean, it sounds to me like they're psyching us up for finding out that a whole lot of the crap they've made up during this Ukraine thing is just completely not true. Sounds like they're getting ready for us to find out they have lied through their teeth a lot throughout this whole crisis. But that's OK, because Russia bad. And then you're not allowed to say true things like Hunter Biden's laptop or biolabs or Ukraine is a corrupt country and Zelensky is a corrupt politician. You can't say any of that because even though it's true, it might help Russia. This is, this is insanity. This is utterly insanity. This is utterly insane. And, and I mean, if, if anyone doesn't look at that clip and, and do a double take, you know, uh, I don't know, I don't know what to say, but I wanted to just end, uh, the opening remarks because, you know, a lot of people accuse me of being transphobic. Right now, I'm not a trans rights activist. Um, I have marched for trans rights before. I, I did, you know, attend Pride, and I marched against the NYPD and their policies of profiling trans people and their their uh, anti prostitution sweeps. Uh, you know, and I I I do you know want to see my trans friends protected. There are many trans people who work with me in the Center for Political Innovation, and I respect them, and I would never want to see anyone ever harm them or disrespect them. But I'm not the kind of person that goes around marching for trans rights. I'm not I'm not hip on the lingo. I, I am not ready to debate anybody on those issues. I actually don't know what to think about some of the issues, the hot debates related to the trans issue. But, you know, I'm constantly accused of being transphobic. Right. You know, that's the, one of the allegations that the synthetic left makes against me. You know, and this week I was reminded uh, of the you know, I actually knew the first trans activist in U.S. history was somebody I briefly got to work with. In 2007, I joined the Workers' World Party. And for about two years after that, Leslie Feinberg uh, was still politically active. Um, and, you know, Leslie Feinberg was the first openly trans activist. Uh, she was a member of the Workers' World Party. Uh, she, wrote, uh, she wrote The Diary of a Transsexual in the early 70s, which was a, like the first trans rights pamphlet. Uh, she eventually wrote uh, Stonewall Warriors and uh, Transgender Warriors. And, um, you know, uh, you know, she Stone Butch Blues was like a, a novel that she wrote. And, that, you know, Leslie Feinberg, um, you know, was was kind of a definitive person in the trans movement. And, you know, I only knew Leslie for like the last two years of her politically active life. I have no right to, um, you know, to invoke her legacy. And I'm sure she would vehemently disagree with a lot of what I say right now. I mean, I mean, we'll be honest, right? She was very much a Marcyite. She was very much a movementarian. She would probably disagree with my out of the movement to the masses approach. She'd be not happy about some of the people I work with now, et cetera. But one thing about Leslie Feinberg is that Leslie Feinberg was a tanky, if there ever was a tanky. 
And actually, in the time that I knew her, she was, you know, going around and speaking at universities, and they'd invite her to speak about trans rights, and she would instead speak about why you should support Cuba or why you should support Iran. Uh, you know, she was all about, all about fighting against U.S. imperialism and calling out U.S. imperialism as the main enemy of humanity. And this clip actually surfaced, and this will tell you just how much of a tanky Leslie Feinberg was. And I just wanted to show this clip. Carried before we had a pride flag, we carried the North Vietnamese flag as our pride flag. Now, you could hear that now and think, well, that's interesting, but it wasn't just an abstract thing. The Gay Liberation Front and the Third World Liberation Front named themselves in solidarity with the North Vietnamese people at a time when that was considered treason. That's like now coming out and defending the resistance of the Iraqi people, the Palestinian people, the North Korean people, the Iranian people, the Cuban people. We faced getting beaten up on the streets for marching with the Vietnamese flag, but we knew that if we didn't defend the Vietnamese people, we were going to weaken, first of all, the people who deserved our support because we were the aircraft carrier in which the war was being launched in all our names. We would lose the solidarity with the Vietnamese people and we would lose our own political soul as a movement as well if we didn't take a position in support. Yeah, that was Leslie Feinberg talking about how, about as far as she was concerned, the struggle for LGBT rights in the United States was aligned with the struggle, not just of the Vietnamese people and the Vietnamese, you know, tanky communists, Ho Chi Minh, but also with the the Iraqi resistance against the United States during the after the U.S. invasion, also with the Korean people, North Korea, also with the Palestinians, also with the Iranians. I mean, she was a tanky as far as she was concerned. The struggle for LGBT rights was a struggle against against U.S. imperialism. And she was aligning herself. And you should go and read the articles she wrote defending Iran when people accused Iran of being anti-LGBT. Um, you know, and I, I've posted some of those articles. You can go go search Leslie Feinberg Iran or Leslie Feinberg North Korea. You know, Leslie Feinberg was a tanky if there ever was one. And for these people to uh, to claim that those of us who defend uh, defend North Korea or defend Cuba or defend Iran or Venezuela that somehow uh, that that means that that we are vicious transphobic, homophobic bigots, uh, they have no idea what they're talking about because like the founder of the trans rights movement was herself a, a vehement tanky who defended Iran, defended North Korea, defended uh, Cuba, defended Venezuela, defended, you know, defended China and the Chinese revolution. So just wanted to mention that. I just felt like showing that clip. But yeah, it's been a while, folks. I uh, just wanted to kind of go over how things are going. So um, I think that ends my opening remarks. Uh, we've been at it for about an hour and 18 minutes. So why don't we now do the roll call? Why don't we now do the roll call where I call you out as I see you, names and locations. So let me call you out as I see you, names and locations, names and locations, folks. Names and locations, let me call you out as I see you. I see Kendall in San Diego. Who else do I see? Kendall in San Diego. I see Naples, Florida, Harold Sullivan. I see Tara Hoot, Charles Rogers, Mike in Las Vegas, President Jesus, Char Char Darling, Nassau County, Allen in Chicago, John Whitty in Houston, Phil Sang, from Mississippi, David in Seattle, Queen in Tennessee, Jonathan in Los Angeles, Oakland, Ken Silver, 
Elias in Wisconsin, Kinky in Joshua Tree, California, Nicola in the Chicago suburbs, Don D in NYC, Mike Martinez in Miami, both good friends of mine. Hello, Mark from California, Gabby in Chicago, Tony from Oregon Coast. Shout out to you, Gabby. Shout out to Oz in Edmonton, 28 Auckland, San Jose, California, Ash in Chicago, Jeff in Southern California, um, Tony in Tasmania, Carl in Tacoma, Rice in Adelaide, Australia, Cody in Utah, Sierra Vesta, David in Thailand, Rice from Adelaide, Australia, Bob Troy in New York, Cody in Utah, uh, Corvega Starkiller in Washington State, uh, Montreal, Quebec, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, that's Leo Tolstoy. Uh, Joey from New Zealand says, what's up, Caleb? Smithville, Missouri, Ryan Clark, Kelly in Maine, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, Danny RG, Marlin in San Diego, Arturo from Alaska, Anthony in Detroit, St. Louis, Bradley Wasser, Ozzy, Ozzy, Cleveland Pirate Alex, Detroit, Michigan, da David Rennie in Hamilton, Ontario, Bill from Parts Unknown, Kid Kidding, Maryland. Very, very good. Very, very good. Very, very, very good. Very, 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 very good. Uh, Niagara Falls, New York. Uh, Smedley Butler. That's uh, Jason. Uh, Orlando, Florida. Mo from Pomona, California. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, 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 welcome. Great opening, says Harold Sullivan. Well, thank you. Robert from Hawaii. Jersey City represents, says Greg. Welcome, everybody. So glad to have you here tonight. And, you know, it's really, really great to uh, to do these streams with all of you. Um. You know, if you really want to support what we're doing here, sign up on the Patreon. I've been neglecting it a little bit lately, but we're going to do some makeup streams because I missed the last two because I've been running around. Looks like the Chicago Conference of the Center for Political Innovation is going to happen. It appears it's going to happen. Not confirmed 100% yet, but it's looking good. So it looks like pretty soon we'll be announcing the date for the Chicago Conference of the Center for Political Innovation. Fingers crossed on that. Very, very, very exciting. Very exciting stuff, folks. Very, very exciting. Um, so uh, keep keep your eye on that. Um, you know, um, but yes, if you wanna, if you wanna really support what we do here, always could use more support on the Patreon. We're gonna try to find a special way to give to the Patreon community. I've been neglecting on that. Um, but there you go. So Chicago, folks, Chicago. Uh, great film on YouTube Z by Costa Varis. Uh, worth a watch if anyone has seen it. I haven't actually seen it. I know Max Blumenthal was tweeting about it the other day. I haven't actually seen it. I believe it's about the struggle against the fascist government in Greece, right? I believe it's about the Greek people and their struggle against fascism. Uh, but I haven't actually seen that film. But there you go. There you go, folks. All right. So we're going to start answering super chats. If the super chats uh, continue to roll in, I'll be writing them down and we'll just start answering them. John Mearsheimer. What are my thoughts on John Mearsheimer? Well, John Mearsheimer is a uh, political scientist in the United States, uh, specializes in international relations. Uh, he's the author of a very controversial book that came out during the Obama years called The Israel Lobby. Um, and the, it was about the role of Israel in U.S. politics. Um, and um, basically, they argued that Israel has a huge amount of influence in American politics. And at the time, you know, that book that they published, uh, you know, and, you know, it, it was it was kind of only considered it was considered fringe to talk about the Israel lobby. 
But they basically argued as mainstream political scientists that there was indeed uh, a lot of influence by the Israel lobby. Um, and at the time that they published that book, it was very controversial. And then it became a big scandal that in the Obama administration, uh, you know, there were some people in Obama's campaign who had read that book. Um, and it showed that, you know, that Israel has enemies within the U.S. power structure. Uh, there are people within the U.S. power structure who are critical of Israel. One of them is, um, you know, uh, what is bigger than Bernie about? It's behind you. Um, okay. Uh, we'll write that down. What is bigger than Bernie? It's behind you. And, um, you know, they were, they were critically, you know, and it, and it showed like Brzezinski, Zbigniew Brzezinski was a longtime U.S. foreign policy strategist who was awful. Uh, you know, very sympathetic to fascistic anti-communists in Europe, uh, had kind of an ethnic hatred for Russians, you know, but he was also quite critical of Israel, uh, you know, and, and he, he basically thought Israel was an impediment to the United States in carrying out its goals. And if you look at Brzezinski's career, he's going around the world mobilizing anti-Semites to support the United States. In Eastern Europe, he's working with Polish anti-Semites like the Solidarznok Union, like Ukrainian Nazis, Etc. You know, and in the Middle East, he's working with you know with you know Islamic extremists like Osama bin Laden and people you know the Saudis, etc. And there's a lot of anti-Semitism. So Brzezinski is basically uh, you know he's he's working with all these anti-Semites to get them to be proxies of the United States to get you know European fascists to fight the Russia to get get you know an Islamic uh, extremist you know crusade or jihad uh, in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union and against the People's Democratic Party. So. He's quite critical of Israel, right? And that, that of course, he does not coming out and screaming against Israel, right? He was the national security advisor of, of Jimmy Carter. But but behind the surface, Israel didn't like Brzezinski and Brzezinski didn't like Israel. And that, that Mearsheimer book kind of indicated that. Now, John Mearsheimer, he's been attacked a lot recently because he's talked about the Russia situation. Um, oh, uh, shout out to Mila. Uh, he, he's talked about the Russia situation in an honest way. Right. And in an honest way, he's talked about it. He said, look, you know, Russia perceives NATO's expansion as a threat. Uh, Russia feels that the overthrow of the Ukrainian government in 2014 was a threat on them. I mean, you know, he has talked about the facts in this Ukraine crisis. He's not pro-Russian by any means. He's not an anti-imperialist by any means, but he's just sat down and said, OK, I believe he's talked about, they call it Thucydides trap, I believe is the term that's used, where they talk about how every defensive move that you take is interpreted as offensive by your enemy. And every offensive move that your enemy takes is interpreted as defensive by your enemy, right? So whenever, you know, whenever you take a move and think you're being defensive, your enemy thinks you're being offensive. And whenever you take a move that you think is offensive, your enemy you know, is that you think your enemy is defensive. You get what I'm saying. And that, that, you know, he, he sees foreign policy in these terms and he's trying to sit there and go, how do the Russians see it? Okay. How does America see it? How do the Ukrainian allies, of the United States see it? But how does Russia see it? That's not acceptable. You're not allowed to do that anymore. You're not allowed to do that. That's not acceptable in the United States. The only narrative you're allowed to have is Russia is pure evil and it's murdering those poor, innocent Ukrainians because Putin is pure evil now, if you say any, if you stray from that script in any way, they accuse you of being a Russian asset. They accuse you of being a Russian asset. 
And so, John, you know, he's been widely attacked for just talking about it. Seems impossible to talk about politics and the attention span of most people. Even one minute is too much. How does this improve? We need a new game plan. All right, writing it down. Talk about politics. One minute attention span. New game plan. All right. There you go. Next question. Uh, how did the weakening of the USSR enable neoliberalism? How did the weakening of the USSR enable neoliberalism? Well, you'll notice um, commodity fetishism. We'll talk about that. All right. All right. Writing it down. Marks. All right. And... Um, The fall of the Soviet Union opened the door to all kinds of shock therapy free market reforms in Eastern Europe. After the fall of the Soviet Union, there were mass privatizations across Eastern Europe. They were selling off state industries, you know, to the highest bidder. They ripped apart the welfare state. It was a disaster economically. And on top of that, because there was not fear of a communist revolution, neoliberalism was implemented throughout the world, especially in Latin America. In Latin America, for a long time, the United States had tolerated these kind of military regimes. And this is one thing that liberals would point out during the Cold War, anti-war activists. The United States says it loves democracy, but the USA is backing this military regime of Somoza in Guatemala, and it's backing this military dictator in Venezuela, and it's backing like this military dictator in, uh, you know, in, in Colombia. And so the United States says it, it loves freedom, but it's backing these military regimes. Well, one thing about these military regimes the United States was backing, like uh, Noriega in Panama, was that these military regimes that they were backing were not neoliberal. In a lot of cases, these military regimes were actually, there was a level of Bonapartism, right? Juan Perón and the Peronist tradition comes out of Argentina. Uh, and that they were doing things, they were, you know, the military would control sections of the economy and have factories that produced products that were owned by the military. They would hand out the goods to certain parts of the country, right? There was a military dictator in Guatemala called Rios Mont, and he committed genocide against the indigenous people in the countryside, but he handed out the goods to the, the lighter skinned folks in, in the city, in Guatemala City, in the capital city. He, he handed out the goods. He, he took care of them, right? The military dictator Park Chung-hee in South Korea. Um, Park Chung-hee in South Korea murdered leftists. He had like prison camps for homeless children. He was vicious to the labor movement, vicious to poor people in South Korea. But he also, he built a state-run steel industry, POSCO, and he took care of the urban population. And many people in the urban centers of South Korea saw their living standards go up. And that that's how Bonapartist military strongmen regimes tend to work, is they tend to brutally crush a lot of people, but in order to get away with it, they have to hand out the goods to some other people. That ain't neoliberalism. That is not neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is privatize everything. Don't hand out the goods to anybody. You know, just, just completely deregulate free market economy. So in 1973, the USA overthrew the government of Salvador Allende. Allende was elected in Chile. He was kind of a socialist, a social democrat, wanted to move Chile towards socialism, was sympathetic to the Soviet Union. The USA overthrew him and they put in Augusto Pinochet as the military dictator. But Augusto Pinochet was different than other previous military dictators because Augusto Pinochet did not hand out the goods. 
he brought in the Chicago School of Economics, the Chicago Boys, Milton Friedman, and they demolished the economy. Um, all right. Um, why did the right? Okay. I'm sorry about that, folks. All right. All right. Hold on. Hold up. Why did the socialist government of Cambodia fall? All right. Okay. Writing it down. Writing it down. Okay. I did the socialist government of Cambodia all after Pol Pot. All right. All right. So, uh, you know, these a lot of these dictators would hand out the goods. Pinochet did not hand out the goods. Pinochet had it, you know, he basically implemented dramatic free market reforms and they had 30% unemployment. They had a mass episode of malnutrition. They immediately got rid of all the food subsidies. A lot of they were reports of children fainting in school uh, because they didn't have proper nutrition. Uh, I mean, it was a disaster. They just demolished the economy of Chile with neoliberal reforms, and that was the beginning of neoliberalism. You didn't have you didn't have neoliberalism. Most of these military regimes throughout South and Central America wouldn't do that, right? And as the Cold War started to come to an end, the United States started overthrowing, essentially, a lot of the dictators that they had been backing. And this is very interesting because, again, the United States had been backing all these dictators, but then the United States was proceeding to overthrow these dictators. And why was the United States overthrowing the dictators? It was overthrowing them because it did not really need them anymore. And dictators are a barrier to neoliberalism. In order to have a strong military regime, you have to hand out the goods to somebody. Um, and, you know, if, if, if the strong military regime is unnecessary, they want to maximize their profits. And a lot of times these military dictators had built state industries, you know, and, you know, uh, they built mining corporations that were used to kind of hand out, you know, money in the country, or they, they kind of built up certain in industries and they no longer needed these guys and they were getting in the way. And like, for example, Manuel Noriega was somebody the United States had armed and backed to fight the communists. He was a military dictator in Panama. Uh, he was backed by the United States. However, um, you know, got to the point, the United States said, we don't need you anymore. And he said, well, I'm not going to go. And so then in order to stay in power, because he saw the United States wanted to overthrow him, he started doing really dramatic kind of Bonapartist stuff. And he started building new airports and he started hiring unemployed people in order to stay in power, basically, because his bosses, the United States had said he'd he was fired. Um, he basically started enacting progressive reforms, even though he was not a communist, not a progressive. Uh, in order to stay in power, uh, he needed to uh, he needed to enact some reforms. So the United States ultimately invaded and overthrew Noriega. That was the Bush administration. They invaded Panama. They said it was about drugs or whatever, right? And that, that we saw this. And and in order to implement neoliberalism, you can't have. And this is the I ironic thing. A lot of people associate neoliberalism with Pinochet, and that's true. Pinochet was the first place they tried it, but it didn't work in Chile. Right. It didn't work because after after six or seven years, it didn't work uh, because the economy had collapsed and Pinochet was on the brink of being overthrown. And so in order to stay in power, Pinochet started renationalizing things. Right. The economic miracle of Chile that we often hear about. This is often heralded. Advocates of libertarian economics will talk about the Chilean economic miracle. That's later. That's in the 80s when Pinochet renationalized everything and started acting like a military dictator again. And so then there was a, a move to overthrow him. You know, George Soros and other people and leftists and communists who'd been brutally repressed by Pinochet ultimately had a protest movement to bring him down. 
Um, and the same goes, you know, the same goes for many other places. In order to enact neoliberalism, you need a weak government. You need a weak government. You can't have a strongman government because that strongman regime is going to be able to stand up to privatizations. And that strongman, in order to stay in power, is going to have to, you know, improve people's living standards. If you look at the way neoliberalism was implemented in Bolivia, if you look at the way it was implemented in many countries, Honduras, it was implemented by, we don't even remember what these presidents' names were. No one even knows who was the president of Bolivia who sold off Bolivia, sold Bolivia down the river, privatized the oil, privatized everything. We don't even know his name because he was so weak and pathetic. No one even cared. He was just a puppet. You know, when I went to Ecuador, when I was 12 years old in 1999, and I got off the plane and saw crowds of desperately poor, starving people, I didn't even know who the president was. And I think they'd had like a different one every week or something. It was like, no one even cares. These were weak, pathetic governments that could not stand up to the international bankers. And that's the thing. Neoliberal economics tends to require a weak government. And that, you know, these kind of strongman military dictator regimes that the United States have been backing, uh, you know, we're, we're getting rid of. And that's why, you know, George Soros in his Open Society Institute, this is very interesting. George Soros' main target was communism, right? It was the main thing he, he did was try to overthrow communist governments. He overthrew communist governments uh, in Eastern Europe and protest movements. He's against China. China's his main focus. But he also was involved in overthrowing these various, you know, various juntas. He was involved in the movement to overthrow Pinochet in Chile. He was involved in, in various movements, you know, to build open societies in Latin America and in Eastern Europe. And in a lot of cases, the people he was overthrowing weren't communists. They were U.S.-backed dictators. Why? Because the United States didn't need them anymore. And because George Soros benefited when these countries opened up and he would manipulate the currencies and make money off of it. And he would loot these countries economically and make money from it. Right. And of course, I'm mentioning George Soros, not because I'm Rush Limbaugh and not because I, I, I think that, you know, George Soros is a communist. I'm mentioning George Soros because he's a key international player here. And that this is what you have to understand. So neoliberalism needs a weak government, a government that can't do anything, a government that is so pathetic and weak that the international bankers and Wall Street can just roll right over them. Um, that's what neoliberalism tends to want. So, you know, that that's important. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, when there was no threat of communist revolution, you saw neoliberalism marching ahead. Uh, in a lot of ways, you saw neoliberalism marching ahead. Um, so there you go. There you go. All right. Next question. Um, 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 is the wave of weed legalization responding to popular desire or drugs as weapons against us? Um, look, I am for legalization of marijuana. I mean, I don't smoke marijuana. I never have, actually. But I am for legalization. No one should ever go to jail for smoking marijuana. Um, ever. No one should ever go to jail for smoking marijuana. Okay, like of all the things going to jail, people don't realize how traumatic of an experience that is, right? People think it's like, you know, they just go to jail. They've seen it on TV. It's not so bad. Talk to anyone who's ever been to prison. It is a traumatic, horrendous experience to be body searched every day, uh, you know, to, to be, you know, locked up. I mean, and, and my God, why in the world should anyone be subjected to the experience of being locked up? dehumanized uh you know you know they extract forced labor from you just for using drugs you know no if someone makes the personal choice to smoke marijuana that's not something they should ever go to jail for no one should ever go to jail for smoking marijuana that said um 
why are they legalizing marijuana? I don't think they're just responding to popular will. In fact, there's been popular will for legalizing marijuana since the 90s. I believe Bill Clinton uh, fired his uh, uh, his Surgeon General, uh, you know, because she said to legalize marijuana. And polls showed overwhelmingly it was pretty high. There was a pretty high percentage of Americans, and especially Americans under 30, who wanted to legalize marijuana. Uh, and especially in places like New York City, more liberal places, California, There's there's been widespread popular support for that for a long time. All right. Um, now, obviously, in middle America, you know, more conservative areas, not so much, but, you know, it, it's different in, you know, in different areas. But I think the main reason marijuana is being legalized right now is because of economic problems, right? I mean, the economy is falling apart and uh, weed, legalizing weed is a new market. It's a new market, basically. Um, you know, it, it brings in new new jobs, new companies. It gives the state new revenue for taxes. They tax it like crazy. And they regulate it like crazy. Um, and I, I think it's it's just simply due to economics. And certain states uh, have realized that it is in their economic interest to legalize marijuana. Um, you know, and that, again, the licenses are handed out to their friends. And it's just it's due to the economic crisis more than anything, um, I would argue. Now, some people argue that in the long term, and this is an interesting you know, thing, that in the long term, it does hurt business in the state. Right. Because people are all smoking weed and, you know, it leads to the uh, the downtown areas becoming dirtier uh, and and it leads to kind of a deterioration. You know, and I think there might be an argument there, but that doesn't mean people should go to jail for smoking marijuana. They shouldn't. So, you know, I mean, you know, I, you can argue that it, it actually has a negative impact on business. And that's an argument I've heard many conservatives make. And there might be something to that. Um, you know, is it drugs as weapons against us? I mean, I don't know. I do know that in the 1960s, the CIA had a program called MK Ultra, where they were promoting drug use all throughout the United States. Uh, I do know in the 1980s, uh, the U.S. government was working with extremists uh, and anti-communists in Latin America that were involved in bringing cocaine into the United States. Um, but as far as are they are they doing some kind of psyop now? Again, I don't feel like there's a grand controller with that much power who's sitting on the throne and going, all right, we shall legalize weed in order to manipulate the minds of the Americans. I mean, there may be some thinking that right now a lot of young people are very angry, uh, that there were a lot of very extreme protests recently, unrest is rising, and it wouldn't be, get, be better if everyone was at home smoking dope uh, rather than rather than protesting. So maybe there might be something going on there. but you know, other than that, eh, you know, there you go. Always wanted to ask you, understand you to push you to be less hard on mind expanding drugs, but disagreements aside, I wish you well and applaud your vision and embrace you. Thank you, felonious punk. Thank you very much. So, yeah, I mean, you know, that said, you know, yeah, I'm for legalization because no one should ever go to jail. I mean, you know, going to jail is a horrendous, awful experience that people go through. And there's, I mean, smoking marijuana is not something that someone deserves to be punished in that way for. Um, so there you go. Um, but yeah, is, I mean, is it possible there's like some kind of thinking there's some, you know, CIA think tank that's thinking, well, maybe this will pacify people or something possibly, but I almost feel like, again, I feel like this is local municipalities that are making this decision because they think it'll bring them more money. Um, there you go. Fascism's primary purpose is to defeat socialism and maintain the rule of profit. You are correct. You are correct. Uh, David, uh, you are correct. Um, it is a mechanism for stabilizing capitalism, defeating the threat of revolution, and keeping and maintaining profits and command. And fascism is not long term. 
uh, because at the end of the day, the problems inherent in the capitalist system don't go away with fascism. They don't. The fascists are still not able to solve it. Nazi Germany, they came in and they had dramatic Bonapartist reforms and they stabilized the economy for three or four years. They had a huge amount of economic growth. But then by about 1939, they were right back where they started and they had to have World War II uh, because of the same problem, right? That if you just keep spending lots of government money on building tanks and bombs and, and guns in order to build the economy, pretty soon you can only do that for so long and then you're going to have a problem. You know, fascism and Bonapartism are only a temporary fix. The only way to resolve the problem of overproduction is to have a society where the banks, factories, and industries are organized to serve public good. You need the means of production, the centers of economic power, to be organized to serve the people. You need, you need socialism. You need a government of action that will fight for working families. That's the only way out of this crisis. Um, then Bonapartism, you know, is a mechanism for temporary stabilization, but it doesn't solve the problem. There you go. All righty. All right. The Tea Party movement was anti-Bush, but co-opted by neocons. Uh, I was there. I remember it very well. Uh, you know, I remember the Tea Party and it was right after, right after Obama got elected. A lot of the Republicans who had just been straight up support Bush, you know, if you don't support Bush, you're working for the terrorists. Trust, you know, Bush torturing people. They deserve it. They're terrorists. Bush tapping your phone. Well, that's, you know, if you don't have anything to hide, why would you be afraid of the government tapping your phone? Well, all of a sudden, out of the blue, all those people were libertarians and the U.S. government is out of control and these wars are being are not right. And they were all libertarians. And Obama was a communist and they were all Ron Paul supporters and libertarians. And yes, a lot of them were non-interventionists and a lot of them were you know i mean they wanted to legalize drugs and they wanted you know they were they were pushing you know federal reserve conspiracy theories etc um but it's kind of what, what the democrats did with the bernie movement it was about the fact that bush had screwed things up so much the bush administration had you know the economy had just collapsed the 2008-2009 financial collapse had just happened uh, the Arab world was almost united against the United States. Hezbollah were like the heroes uh, of the Middle East because they defeated Israel and handed Israel such a big defeat. The oil prices were through the roof. Some of the, you know, the whole highest oil prices in history. I mean, they're higher now, but at that point, they were the highest oil prices in history. Putin was riding high. Iran was riding high. Um, Venezuela and Bolivarian socialism was marching ahead and imperialism was in a crisis. And so the, the neocons, the, the Bush folks were out. And they brought in the Brzezinski crowd and Barack Obama, uh, who had studied under Brzezinski at Columbia University, was brought in. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of the more uh, Brzezinski, Jimmy Carter kind of folks took over. The neocons have been running U.S. politics really since Reagan. But the Jimmy Carter, you know, his big new Brzezinski crowd of, you know, more CIA, uh, you know, strategists, they were they were back into power. Um and uh, so because of that, with, with those folks in power, um, you know, you had um, at that point, um, you had you had a shift um, and the neocons were out. So in order to make in order for the Republicans, there were all these like at the time, there was all this talk, of, like, what does it mean to be a Republican? And like, I remember they had CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, and like Rush Limbaugh, the radio host was like the main speaker because it was like, who are they going to have, you know, Bush, you know, Dick Cheney, like Dick Cheney was so unpopular and Bush was unpopular. They, so they brought in 
they brought in Rush Limbaugh. And all of a sudden, Glenn Beck was riding high. I don't know if you remember Glenn Beck. Um, you know, he was this right-wing commentator, uh, like a shock jock here in New York who'd converted to Mormonism and had his chalkboard with like conspiracy theories and stuff. And the right wing kind of reinvented itself. Suddenly they were all libertarians. Suddenly Ron Paul was the the hero of all the Republicans. All the Republicans loved Ron Paul. And it was like the new way to be a Republican was to be a libertarian. Um, but yeah, at the beginning, it seemed like a lot of them were much more sincere in their libertarian principles. Uh, a lot of anti-Israel stuff, a lot of federal anti-federal reserve stuff. Um, but then pretty soon, you know, it was pretty clear that neocon politics still dominated Republican circles. And that, again, the libertarian Tea Party element was just kind of being used. Um, it, it degenerated at the beginning. It was this kind of, you know, right wing populist mobilization. You know, we don't like taxes. Obama's a communist. He's a traitor. What about middle America? These bailouts are socialism because the government's, you know, that says corporations are too big to fail. Well, don't bail out these corporations. Let them fail. Let our small businesses flourish. We're responsible small business owners, not these big corporations that are corrupt that got bailed out. There was kind of a, a populist edge to it, and it was largely libertarian ideologically. Um, but then, uh, you know, it became pretty clear the neocons still run the Republican Party. And, you know, I mean, Mitt Romney was the Republican Party nominee in 2012. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it was still very much a neocon party. So, Yes, it was like it was like in order to build enthusiasm on the Republican side, uh, there was this Tea Party movement. Um, and there were, you know, obviously a lot of people who sincerely believed in it. But it became very clear that this was just kind of a psyop, kind of like the Bernie movement. In a lot of ways, Bernie Sanders was never supposed to win. Bernie Sanders was just supposed to be a psyop to get people on the Democratic side excited. That's really what Bernie Sanders was there to do. Right. They were never going to let Bernie Sanders actually win the nomination. That was never going to happen. Bernie Sanders was just there to get, you know, the left all riled up and to get the left, you know, so democratic socialism. I believe in democratic socialism. I am Bernie Sanders. And, you know, to get all the, you know, the leftists riled up. And, and it was, again, you know, as the Democratic Party was struggling to maintain its credibility after the Obama administration. Um, these things happen, right? And th this is this is political maneuvering because there are fights in the ruling class. They need to have their foot soldiers. They need their shock troops, right? And one thing that the Tea Party did was they fought like hell against the American uh, Affordable Care Act, which in a way, um, you know, I mean, they fought like hell against the American Affordable Care Act. They like thousands of people would come to Washington and they were calling it. And it was brilliant because it protected the Democrats from actually having to do anything in the American Affordable Care Act. Right. The American Affordable Care Act was it was never national health care. It was never socialized medicine. It was never anything like that. All the American Affordable Care Act did was it, it, it again, it, it made it so they 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 couldn't deny you medical care because of a pre-existing condition. Um, and um, it, it that's about it. Like, I mean, you know, and it created a, a like a website that you can get your health care from. That was it. I mean, it was like, it, again, originally there was this public option. There was going to be a public health care plan that would like set the standard and compete with the private plans. Well, that was gotten rid of. And the right wing was telling everyone that o Obamacare was full on communism. Right. And so the Democrats, you know, oh, look, they're so mad about it. They watered it down so much uh, that ultimately, you know, Big Pharma was able to make sure there was not very much big, not Big Pharma, but big insurance companies. We're able to make sure there was very, very little, um, you know, 
No, Bernie brought some cool ideas to the front, then chickened out. And we'll talk about that here. Hold on. Um, you know, Bernie brought cool ideas to the front and then chickened out. You know, and it became clear um, that, uh, you know, that, that, that the Affordable Care Act was so watered down, um, you know, I mean, one of the, I mean, one of the big things with the Affordable Care Act was the mandate, right? In the United States, um, you know, in the man, you know, you're, you're now required to have health insurance. It is the law. Then if you don't get health insurance, you have to pay a fine. You have to pay like a $4,000 fine in your taxes if you don't have health care. That's a dumb dumb thing, right? Instead of giving people health care, they just punish people for not having it. That's really dumb, right? Um, and, you know, the right wing was like, oh, it's communism. The government's making you buy things. Well, no, no. Bush had proposed this. Bush had proposed a health insurance mandate, right? And the idea was to basically force people to get health insurance, right? Because that would be better for the economy if people were buying it. Um, and basically, you know, just like if you have a car, you have to have insurance. In the United States, you're required by law to get health insurance. Now, you know, the penalty is just it comes out of your taxes, basically. And if you're very poor, it won't affect your taxes very much. Uh, but, you know, it's just like, you know, how does that help anything? Right. So basically, if you don't buy a product from a private company, you have to pay a fine in your taxes. That's not socialism in any conceivable way. Um, you know, um, but. You know, again, the Tea Party created this atmosphere where the right wing was just so fired up against it that that created an atmosphere where it was very, very difficult uh, to, um, you know, for I mean, it was it was very easy for the Democrats to just water Obamacare down into nothing, which is what it is. It's pretty much nothing. Um, you know, and I would still I would turn on Fox News and I would hear them say, well, you know, Obama, he nationalized all the health care. No, he nationalized the auto industry. No. And I'd be like, how are they saying this? He, I mean, the healthcare is still wildly private. Uh, you know, the, 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 you know, auto industry, there was a big bailout, a conservatorship, but it was never nationalized. And I would hear them say like, Obama, the government has taken over healthcare. It's taken over. I mean, I, I, how would they say this with a straight face? I would hear them. It was just ridiculous. But the main thing about the Tea Party is I was wrong. You hear that? I was wrong. We were wrong. The approach we had toward the Tea Party was the Rachel Maddow approach. We were taking our cues from Rachel Maddow. We were taking our cues from Keith Olbermann. And we thought these people are fascists. These people are right wing. Uh, they are fascists. And we got to go out and protest them. That was not the right approach. I, even then, I was starting. There's part of me that said, wait a second. We shouldn't sound like Rachel Maddow. That is the class enemy. No, we should have been going to the Tea Party. And talking to the people. And it would have been harder. would have been a lot harder. But we should have been going to the Tea Party and talking to them. And getting them to understand that, that what they were mad about. About their taxes being too high. About the economy and the big corporations getting bailed out. That was all because of capitalism. And that socialism was the answer. We should have gone there and put forward our, our politics. And yes, they wouldn't have been met with a lot of support. People would have been very hostile. But we should have gone there. And tried to win those people to socialism. And actually, oddly, you know, uh, you know who's actually said this at the time, which is kind of hilarious. Noam Chomsky said this. Actually, I remember reading Noam Chomsky actually said that that's what you know should happen. That uh, you know that that you know the left should try and win over the Tea Party. Um, and you know we didn't. Uh, we followed. We took our cues from Rachel Maddow, uh, and we 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 were wrong. 
you know? Um, and I mean, I, there's no other way to put it than that. I mean, we were just wrong, uh, you know, and we labeled the tea party fascist. We labeled the tea party, the enemy. Um, and we thought the way to be radical was that, you know, all the Democrats are trying to tone things down, but we want to fight them. You know, we thought, you know, that was the way to sound radical is we wanted to, you know, form workers, self-defense militias against the tea party or something. That was wrong. Absolutely wrong. We should have gone and recruited the tea party. We should have gone to the Tea Party events and argued with them about communism. And we should have gone to Tea Party events and found a way to relate to the people there and get the people there to oppose racism and get the people there to oppose uh, sexism, to get the people there to, to understand that socialism is the answer, not free market capitalism and not fascism, right? And we had the wrong approach. We had the wrong approach. And by doing that, we set the stage for Trump and we set the stage for a lot of the bad problems in the United States. We should have found a way to engage with these people intellectually and and win them to socialism and we didn't do that because they're bad they're conservatives they're you know poor white workers we were wrong we really screwed up and we made the opposite mistake with occupy wall street and black lives matter instead of going to those movements in those movements we just blindly supported them and we just wanted to try and you know somehow maneuver into the leadership right and we were wrong there. We should have gone to Black Lives Matter. We should have gone to Occupy Wall Street and won people there to socialism. That's what we should have done. You know, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have been hot. You know, we shouldn't have, have just tailed after and tried to maneuver within Black Lives Matter and within Occupy Wall Street. And we shouldn't have been blatantly hostile and nasty to the Tea Party. We should have recognized these are two non-communist uprisings. One of them is a right-wing libertarian uprising. One of them is a liberal uprising, but both of them don't know what the answer is. The answer is socialism. The answer is the banks, factories, and industries being organized to serve the people, not the profits of a few. The answer is a government of action that will fight for working families. That's the answer. Then police brutality is rooted in the problems of capitalism. Racism are rooted in the problems of capitalism. Wall Street bailouts, you know, greed, money, you know, corruption of our officials, that's all rooted in capitalism. And, the, you know, overtaxation and the tax burden on the working class and the bailing out of the big corporations while small businesses, you know, flounder, that's rooted in capitalism. And that should have been our approach. We shouldn't have tailed after the liberals and we shouldn't have been hostile to the conservatives. We should have just understood these are people that are wrong, but they are at odds with the system. They don't have peace with the system. So they're potential recruits. And if we had had that approach, we would have thousands more communists in the United States than we have now. But instead, right now in the United States, what we have is uh, we have the red team versus the blue team as we all get poorer in this downward spiral uh, as the population is getting worse and worse off. Uh, and that's what I take from the Tea Party. And yeah, I mean, the Tea Party originally when it started, I guess that's the that Pella sent the question. And Pella was saying, you know, well, the Tea Party started out, it was co-opted by neocons. Well, yeah, but I mean, it was at first kind of a big libertarian mobilization against the Affordable Care Act, um, against bailouts, et cetera. And it, it created a way for the, you know, Affordable Care Act to be awful. And yeah, but it was, it was kind of like the Bernie movement, you know, it was a way to get their side riled up. Um, because at the end of the day, the Bush administration sucked. I mean, the Bush administration sucked and if you, you couldn't get Republicans excited about the Bush administration. So get them excited about radical John Birch society, libertarian ideas. Just like, you know, you couldn't get, you know, you couldn't get Democrats excited about the Obama administration. It was one failure and, and let down after another. 
Um, and so you've got to be excited about Bernie Sanders and democratic socialism, you know, and that's, that's how you work. It worked. Right. But our job is to intervene. Um, you know, say our system is more cartelism disguised as capitalism. Well, writing that down, we'll talk about that. Cartelism disguised as capitalism. All right. Um, is Russian capitalism is their monopoly political power is in the USA. Well, look, I would argue that Russia has a Bonapartist government right now. You know, much like Louis Bonaparte was this military strongman who was very powerful, uh, you know, and he basically kicked around the French capitalists in order to stabilize the economy in 1851. Um, I would argue that, that Putin is very much that. He's a Bonapartist uh, and that, you know, there are a lot of private capitalists in Russia but they get kicked around by Putin and that the state, you know, the state, which takes care of a lot of capitalists in, in Russia, there's a lot of Russian capitalists that are in with the state and there's a lot of inequality in Russia. Um, but at the same time, you know, um, at the same time, I would argue that, uh, that these corporations, the, the private capitalist power kind of is subservient to the state and you have a long-term Bonapartist regime in Russia. Uh, you know, that, that Putin very much bases his power among the former Soviet bureaucracy, uh, you know, the, in the, the state-run industries, uh, the security services, folks, entities that were created during the time of the Soviet Union that are no longer ideologically guided by Marxism are the basis of his power. And his bureaucracy has done a lot to stabilize the economy. And it's pretty clear that, that the capitalists and the monopolists that exist are very, very afraid of Putin. Um, and that, that Putin acts, you know, above society, much like Louis Bonaparte did. Um, so there you go. Um, why is the Western right wing further left than American leftists? And this person's talking about how the, the Western, you know, the right wing, the European right wing uh, is, is, you know, against NATO, the European right wing, um, you know, they, they advocate things. Well, you have to understand in the United States, right-wing ideas in the United States really since the end of the Second World War, but even all along, have always been kind of tainted by a libertarian element. It comes from the U.S.'s history. It comes from, you know, Jefferson and his rhetoric, his settler rhetoric about the the yeoman, the small farmer. And, it, you know, there's always been a libertarian edge to U.S. society and U.S. literature. So, and, you know, briefly during the 1930s, we did have, um, we did have during the 1930s, there was like, um, you know, there was like the Silver Legion of America and Father Coughlin and stuff. But for the most part, right wing stuff in the United States has always been very libertarian. Every man for himself, get the government off our backs, you know, and communists are the greatest enemy. And in, in Europe, you have more of a European style where there is much more of a collectivism to the right wing, right? It's, you know, it's like you have, you know, you know, the anti-capitalist demagogy of Mussolini or, or Hitler or Oswald Mosley, people like that. We don't have that in the United States, right? We really don't. Now, that said, I mean, I think that Alex Jones is pretty anti-NATO and he's pretty anti-UN. He's probably very anti-European Union. He thinks it's all the globalists or something like that. So there are elements of our right wing here that are similar to the European right. But yes, the European right is much more culturally focused. It's much more about nationalism. They don't like immigrants, etc. Uh, whereas, and they don't like the European Union, uh, whereas in the United States, uh, the right wing is much more economically focused. They want capitalism. They want privatizations and cutbacks, et cetera. All right. 
Okay. Um, how does the Chinese Communist Party incentivize capitalists to grow and become successful if they can shut them down at any moment? Well, they do it very well, right? The Chinese Communist Party does a lot to help capitalists that they view as being in the interest of the overall economy. Uh, you know, I mean, look at Huawei Technologies. This is the biggest, the biggest uh, corporation, uh, the biggest telecommunications manufacturer in the world. And the Chinese government basically created it and they subsidize it and they use the military to build it up. And the private capitalists uh, who are involved with it, it's technically a cooperative or a profit-sharing entity under Chinese law, but the capitalists who are involved in it have made billions because the Chinese government has kind of taken care of them. And you know, yes, they can shut down corporations at any time, but they also will do a lot to reward and take care of companies that they view as being in the interest of the state. Um, you know, if a company is is doing things they think are in the overall interest of the Chinese, you know, economy, and they're bringing in the foreign investment that they want, often you'll see the Chinese government, you know, being very nice to corporations. It goes both ways. And, you know, they've built huge mega corporations, Dalian, Wanda, and, and I mean, they've done a lot. Um, they've done a lot. So there you go. All right. All right. Next question. Uh, the Pentagon not corroborating the Buka incident. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. It's pretty ridiculous. Um, you know, they tried to, again, another horror story. Russia killed all these people. Now the story's falling apart. But the fact that, you know, that Biden, you know, basically, uh, you know, he's not getting, you know, people to back him up on his anti-Russia, you know, allegations. That's pretty big. That's a pretty big deal. And again, divisions in the ruling class, folks, divisions in the ruling class. Uh, what is Bigger Than Bernie about? It's a Jacobin book. Uh, it's from the Jacobin people. I, I haven't actually read it. I think a friend gave it to me or yeah, it was a friend who somebody who was a friend and then stopped being a friend. And then I, you know, they never asked for their book back. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's by the Jacobin people. It's Verso Press and it's about, uh, what is it about? It says the political ambitions, of the movement behind Bernie Sanders have never been limited to winning the White House. Since Bernie's first entered the presidential primaries in 2016, his supporters have worked to organize a revolution, encouraged to encourage the active participation of millions of ordinary people in political life. That revolution is already underway as evidenced by the massive growth of democratic socialists of America. Teachers, the teachers, Bernie motivated to lead strikes across red and blue states and the rising new generation of radicals in Congress. <laughs> like AOC and Ilan Omar, inspired by his example. <laughs> oh boy, yeah. Yeah, that didn't age well. That didn't age well, did it? Nah, yeah, the 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 rising new generation of radicals in Congress like Ilan Omar and AOC. Oopsie daisy. <laughs> All righty. Sorry. Sorry. Couldn't resist. That was yeah. Whoops. Whoopsie daisy. There you go. There you go. Um but yeah. Um so there you go. There you go. All right. Um, oh, uh, so what is this here? Chaya is saying, give us some book recommendations from your shelf. Sure. Well, all right. So we've got a great book on what happened in Yugoslavia, To Kill a Nation by Michael Parenti, a great study of how U.S. imperialism broke apart a socialist country, Yugoslavia. Uh, very good stuff. Um, what else do we have here? We have, this is an important book, The Rockefeller Syndrome. The Rockefeller Syndrome by Ferdinand Lundberg. This is a study 
of one of the wealthiest families in U.S. politics, uh, the Rockefellers. Ferdinand Lundberg, he wrote a number of books. I think he wrote The Rich and the Ultra Rich. And he studied the Rockefeller family, which is one of the most powerful ruling class families. They're ultra Malthusians. They're tied up with the synthetic left, uh, basically responsible for the sexual revolution by funding the funding the uh, you know what's now called Planned Parenthood, started out as the Birth Control League, also funding the research of, of Alfred Kinsey and the Kinsey Report. Uh, they're liberal social imperialists. Um, another great book I widely recommend is The Future is Up to Us by Nelson Peary. Uh, it's, it's a brilliant Marxist intellectual and revolutionary activist, Nelson Peary, a, uh, you know, talking about capitalism and automation and overproduction and all the stuff I was talking about at the beginning there. Oh, uh, what else? Um, William S. Lind, William S. Lind, uh, the handbook of fourth generation warfare. William S. Lind is a Pentagon strategist um, who basically talked about how in, in our time, wars are not fought, basically about what's going on in Ukraine, right? The U.S. government is not fighting Russia because that would lead to World War III. So they've built up a non-state actors, the Azov Battalion, and they're fighting Russia, these, these, these extremist militias. Well, that's the way wars are fought in our time. And William S. Lind, who's a right-wing you know, extremist kind of fanatic, uh, but he was a Pentagon strategist and he wrote about, you know, he wrote about basically what he calls this concept of fourth generation warfare. Um, what's the Penguin book next to the Parenti book? Well, that would be uh, John Maynard Keynes. That's what that is. The, the essential Keynes. That's what that is. The essential Keynes. Um, I like the movie Kinsey. Why should we be cautious? Well, um, one little detail about Kinsey that, that is not in the movie, and they actually show the opposite in the movie. They cover up for him. Alfred Kinsey hired a child molester uh, to do his research. Um, and there's been a lot of efforts to gloss over that, but there was actually a child molester. Uh, I don't want to get into the details. You can look up the details for yourself. But there was basically a child molester um, who provided Alfred Kinsey with all kinds of information. Um, and this man who had molested little boys, um, you know, uh, was providing him with information. Now in the movie, uh, they make it look like, you know, he just met one guy one time and said, well, that's disgusting or whatever. That's not what happened. There was a child molester who was for the, over the course of years providing Kinsey with research and molesting hundreds of little boys in order to do this research. Um, you know, so that's one thing about the Kinsey report that is covered up is that there was that basically he protected the identity of a pedophile and used a pedophile child molester to do his research. Now, you're not going to see that in the movie. So there you go. Um, but there you go. All right. Uh, all right. What else? Uh, we've got Capital, right? Marx's classic work, Das Kapital, right? Capital. Ugh. Oh, dear Lord, it's hard to put them back. Hard to put them back. Right next to Capital, we have Victor Perlo, American Imperialism by Victor Perlo. Victor Perlo is a brilliant economist and associated with the Communist Party USA. That's good stuff. American Imperialism. Um, yeah, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, down, down here, I have some of the classics. I've got Stalin on the opposition, uh, right? Stalin's writings against Trotskyism, basically, on the opposition. Um, we've got, um, uh, got 
National Liberation and Socialism by Lenin on the national question. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're having a great time here. A lot of different books we can go over. We could go over books all night. I hope that satisfies you, Chaya. We have a lot of different books, a lot of different books. All right, next question. Next question. All right. Um, talk about how people don't want to talk about politics in less than one minute. They don't have an attention span. How do we do that? Well, look, I think you have to have two speeds. You have to have a speed for the kind of people that would watch these streams, the kind of people that are really interested in politics with a lot of depth. Those are the kind of people you want to be, you know, you want to be able to have these kind of conversations with. But then for other folks, you just want to say, hey, why doesn't the government, uh, you know, rebuild the economy? Why doesn't, uh, you know, great. Sure thing. Uh, you know, why don't we have an economic bill of rights? You have to find quick talking points for people that are not into the, um, you know, the ideological, intense, historical stuff. You got to have quick talking points for those people. You got to have different speeds. You should be able to have a conversation with anyone. Um, anyone. You should be able to have a conversation with anyone. But, you know, you have to judge the room. You have to read the room, as they say. Comedians often do that. They'll have jokes and they'll, they'll see the room and they'll say, ah, oh, this is not a, a group that'll appreciate the jokes I'm about to tell. Um, you know, and, um, you know, so there you go. Um, you know, you have to read the room, but you know, with some people you just want to say, Hey, you know, why don't, why don't we have it? So the government, instead of having to tax us, gets money from our oil and gas. Boom. One second. You just said it. Right. Um, you know, uh, so there you go. There you go. Right. You have to read the room and some people you just have to have quick programmatic demands and other people you have to be able to get into long complicated conversations so there you go what is commodity fetishism by marx glad you asked so karl marx was living at the time that industrial capitalism was new and feudalism was being overturned and in feudalism you have a lot of people that are called craftsmen right in feudalism you have the peasants who work the land you have the nobles the landowners but then in addition to that, you have blacksmiths and you have potters who make pottery and you have basket weavers and you have these people who their job is to make a certain product and they make it all by themselves, right? That blacksmith, if you know, if you need a piece of metal, that blacksmith makes it all by himself. If you need a basket, that basket weaver makes it all by themselves. Uh, that potter, if you need a pot, you go to this potter and he makes it all by himself. And what Marx is writing about with his concept of commodity fetishism, um, okay, abolish taxes. All right. Um, what he's writing about with commodity fetishism is when that potter, when that potter, you know, when he makes that pot all by himself, he puts a little bit of his soul into that pot. There's something unique to that pot. He made it himself. It is his pot. And he made it in a way that fits his individual, his individual self. It is a work of art that he himself created. He puts his soul into that pot. Whereas with the rise of industrial capitalism, that pot is made by hundreds of people in a factory. And it's like one guy does this, and he turns a knob, he hands it to the next guy with assembly line production. Not like that, all right. With my big machines and and all kinds of people churning out products all day, it's very different. And you know, an auto worker. I have a friend who works in an auto plant in Detroit. Is his soul in the cars that he makes? No, no. He pushes a button all day, or he, you know, he cuts pieces of metal all day. 
It's his soul. If, you know, if you go and buy a, you know, if you buy a new car that he helped make, is there a little piece of his soul in it? No, of course not. Of course not, right? Because he's alienated from labor, right? The commodity fetishism, the fetish. Fetish, you know, now we think of it as like a sex thing. But but fetish was a word for statues, right? You know, it's like like uh, like graven images or what do they call those um, idols that ancient people used to bow before statues that they thought had spiritual power. So when Marx writes about commodity fetishism, he's arguing that it used to be that the potter put something spiritual of himself into that pot, but that's done away with. That that's done away with um, when when production is carried out for profit in a mass assembly line, and that's what he's writing about commodity fetishism. And I believe this comes from the economic manuscripts of what is it, 1848 or 1841? The economic manuscripts. That's where he talks about alienation, the alienation of labor, and he's he's describing, you know, how under capitalism, a lot of the a lot of the ritual and mystical power that held feudal society together is abolished, right? And that feudal society, there is this weird conservative power that holds feudal society together. You know, like that potter feels that his soul is in those pots and he's going to raise his son to be a potter and, and that's his pot and he feels proud of it. Well, that's done away with, right? Under feudalism, you know, there's, you know, you, the love for the king and the monarch, that, that there's this weird kind of religious mysticism that holds feudal society together. And capitalism rips all apart, all of that apart. He rips it all, rips all of that apart and creates no remaining nexus between man and man, but callous cash payment, right? It makes it all just about money, Right. And that's what Marx spends the opening of the Communist Manifesto. He's praising capitalism because capitalism has torn apart all these authoritarian, hierarchical, feudal, hierarchical, feudal institutions. It's torn them all apart and created a world where it's just about money, right? When you go to work because you want to get paid and, uh, you know, and, and your boss fires you because he doesn't want to pay you anymore, right? It's not this mystical thing where the, the Lord lets you live upon the land, but you swear an oath to be loyal to him. And, you know, yeah, none of that, right? It's just, oh, hey, you want to, I need you to work here. I'll pay you this. Oh, you don't want to, I, I don't need you to work here. You're fired. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's all just about money. There's no magic. There's no mystical power. There's none of that, right? And commodity fetishism is one of the things, one of the things uh, that, that is missing. All right. Very good. Next question. Next question. Um, why did the socialist government of Cambodia fall after Pol Pot? Pol Pot was one of the worst leaders in history. Uh, Pol Pot was an extremist and he did not believe in economic development. Pol Pot, with his year zero policies, he argued that Cambodia could go all the way to full communism on the basis of an agrarian economy. Uh, he evacuated the cities. He started executing people for wearing glasses. Um, he was just brutal. Uh, he was a brutal brutal person who was trying to create, he was a, basically an anarcho-primitivist who was trying to create some kind of, you know, glorious Shangri-La uh, in Cambodia um, and, uh, you know, by, by basically wiping out uh, economic development. And he argued that they could, on the basis of, of feudalism, on the basis of an agrarian society, they could build full communism. 
And it was an absolute disaster. And uh, he then, you know, he waged a war and slaughtered the legit communists in the Cambodian Communist Party. Um, he got Cambodia into a war with its neighbor, Vietnam. And after that, yeah, communism was pretty discredited. And then even today in Cambodia, there's a lot of people who they hate the United States for the vicious bombing campaign that it waged, but they also don't have good feelings about communism because Pol Pot was there speaking in the name of communism uh, and did horrendous things and wrecked their economy and starved people to death and was a disaster. Um, and Pol Pot, we now know, was funded by the United States. He was getting armed by the United States. The United States backed him. Uh, and the United States also kind of encouraged China to intervene and attack Vietnam on his behalf. The Kampuchea War was largely a manipulation by U.S. imperialism. Uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski uh, and Henry Kissinger manipulated communists in Southeast Asia against each other. The Kampuchea War was a big disaster, um, and it was, you know, Pol Pot was a big player in it, and he was being covertly supported by the USA. So there you go. All right. Next question. Bernie brought cool ideas to the front and then chickened out. Yeah, but they, he was never meant to be the candidate, right? Again, it was about floating some ideas out there. Could we move toward a more social democratic model in the United States to stabilize capitalism? A lot of the reforms he did would have improved working people's lives quite a bit. But there was a section of the ruling class saying, do we have to do that? Do we have to do that in order to... Um, you know, in order to to go there, right? I mean, you have to remember the Council on Foreign Relations. A couple of years before Bernie's campaign, one of the front, you know, covers of Foreign Affairs magazine was the social democratic future of the United States. And there were factions of the ruling class saying, you know, maybe in order to stabilize capitalism, we need to have more of a welfare state. And there's there's still sections of the ruling class that think that. And I think sometimes the more Malthusian sections think that way. You know, if we can make sure everyone's not starving, because when people starve, they riot. But if we can give everyone a little bit, you know, give everyone, you know, a little bit of an income and some marijuana, you know, and some pornography and just let them, you know, become depressed and kill themselves gradually and, you know, let their quality of life deteriorate and put them on all kinds of psych meds and medications and get them just kind of miserable and lonely without any friends and sitting on the Internet being programmed by our algorithms. That'll be a much more, much more feasible way of driving down the population and eliminating the useless eaters. Uh, it'll be a much more useful way of doing it uh, than, say, uh, you know, than, than, you know, straight up starving people to death or having a big war or, you know, you know, something like that. Right. And that some of the social engineering folks do like the welfare state because it's a stabilizing thing. Right. Um, you know, that, that's just a reality. Some of them think that, that, that a welfare state might be necessary as a temporary measure to stabilize the economy and drive down the population, right? Some of these fascistic elements that are Malthusian do are open to something like a universal basic income. That doesn't mean I'm for a universal basic income. I think that would be good for working people to have a universal basic income, but I think there are some people that are for it for different reasons than I'm for it. So I'm for it because it would improve the working class. It would show people that you can organize and fight and win things, and that would lead people to go out and organize and fight for bigger things and build a working class movement. They're for it because they think it'll be a way to program and you know carry out social engineering policies. So there are differences, right? So there you go. All right, next question. Next question. This is cartelism disguised as capitalism. My friend, all capitalism is crony capitalism. All capitalism is crony capitalism. Capitalists always try to use their wealth and influence to buy government officials, to have the government do them a favor. That's just how it works. 
There has never been a society that's truly free market where the government just sits back and says, all right, boys, whoever's the, the strongest wins, let the market decide. It's never happened in history. Never. Not during the Gilded Age that libertarians like to talk about. Not during the Roaring Twenties. Never, 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 never. The government is always playing favorites. The government is always helping some capitalists at the expense of others. That's always how it works, my friend. All capitalism is crony capitalism. And yes, we now live in the age of ultra-monopolies. Imperialism is capitalism in its monopoly stage. Trusts, cartels, and syndicates, big monopoly corporations that dominate the world, right? That are using the state is working for them. Big banks, big oil companies, ExxonMobil, Chase Bank, and HSBC Bank, and BP, and Shell, and Chevron, and Ultra monopolies and General Electric has its tentacles all across the planet and the Walton family of Walmart are maniacal. And yes, yes, you are right. We live in an age of cartelism, but cartelism is capitalism, right? You have to understand Karl Marx wrote about the general law of capitalist accumulation, which is that if a capitalist corporation does not expand, it dies. Let me repeat that. The capitalist corporation ceases to expand, it dies. And after a while, you know, when you have hard times, you have the boom bust cycle, eventually you get a situation where all the capitalist corporations that didn't expand die, and you have one or two corporations that are at the top. And then economic growth stops because you have what's called monopolistic stagnation because there's no incentive for them to grow because they're not competing with anybody. So now we have mechanisms created. So when that happens, the, the government breaks them up, in theory, uh, to break apart monopolistic stagnation, right? And that this is, again, capitalism depends on competing entities trying to outgrow each other. Um, and this is the nature of capitalism, right? You know, you know, go back to Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, the founder of the United States, was like a fake populist. Fake populist. Um, very good. And he said that he was for the yeoman. He wanted America to be a country of yeoman. You can Google this. Y-O-E-M-A-N. Yeoman. Right? He was for the small farmers. And he believed in the small farmer who didn't, didn't own any slaves, didn't hire any laborers, just worked his own farm. Self-made man. He wanted a country of self-made yeoman. The problem with that is that, you know, if you have a bunch of individual small farmers, self-made yeoman, eventually there's going to be a drought. And when that drought comes, the crop, the crop output is going to drastically decrease. But some of those farms are going to have more crops than others. So some of those farms are going to stay in business. And the farms that stay in business are going to have money. And the farms that don't will go under. And when those farms go under, some of those yeomen are going to lose their farms. And the farms of some of those yeomen are actually going to get bigger. And pretty soon, some of those yeomen. Uh, that had their own farm are going to be hired wage laborers. And some of those yeomen who used to only have their own farm are going to have a huge farm in which they have hired la laborers at it. This is the nature of the market, right? But yes, when the economy is in a state of boom, you can have prolonged competition. But when you enter a situation like we're in right now, with a pandemic or a huge rise in oil prices or inflation, or when you have economic turbulence, the big ones survive. And the little ones go under. And that's the nature, that's how it works. That's the nature of capitalism. And wealth centralizes more and more into the hands of the few. And then 
when one group of people has more wealth than the others, they tend to try to go to the government and use the government to make it stay that way. This is capitalism. There's nothing non-capitalist about any of this. This isn't the fantasy of capitalism that you get when you read the writings of Milton Friedman, free to choose. Uh, this isn't the fantasy of capitalism that you get in the work of Hayek and libertarians. This is the reality of capitalism. This is what capitalism actually is, right? And capitalism does lead to wealth centralizing in the hands of the few. And those with much more wealth will use that wealth to, to you know, have the government do their bidding. And that's why, that's why libertarianism is a delusion. The idea that somehow you're going to have a government that is just going to keep its hands off, just keep its hands off and let the market naturally work its magic. No, the market magic leads to wealth concentrating in the hands of the few. And the market magic leading to that then inevitably leads to the government being rigged for those people. And in fact, you know, just to keep capitalist production going along, they have to break apart monopolies, right? For example, in the United States, you can't own, you cannot own a movie studio and a movie theater. Did you know that? Right? Why not? Right? Why is the government trying to tell you what you can own? Right. If you're rich and you want to own a movie studio and you want to own a movie theater, that's your business. Right. Keep the government's hands off. Well, no, no. Why? Why is it illegal? Because if you own a movie studio that makes movies and you own a movie theater, you could set up a situation where your movie theater only showed your movies. And that would be a monopoly, unfair competition. And so in order to make sure that we have competition among movie theaters and movie movie studios, we have a situation now where the government has to step in. And if you are a movie studio owner and you want to open a theater, they'll step in and they will threaten you with fines and jail and you have you can't do it. And if you are a movie theater owner and you try to buy a movie studio, they will step in and they will stop you from doing it. That's the nature. Uh, and the capitalists themselves want this. This isn't the big government working on behalf of the little guy. This isn't punishing people for their wealth and their success. You know, this is, has nothing to do with Ayn Rand and the mob coming after the successful people. No, this is, this is the government keeping the capitalist economy functioning. They didn't have rules like that. Pretty soon, there'd only be one movie company in the United States. And there'd be movie theaters that only showed movies from one company. There'll be one movie theater company and one one movie one movie studio company. You can't have that, right? Uh, all right, all right, man. All right. Abolish taxes. Sure. You know, in Russia, they have a flat tax. They have a very low tax in Russia. Why? Because most of the government's revenue comes from oil and, and gas. The government sells oil and gas, and then the revenue from that is what funds the government. You know, yes, Russians pay taxes, but it's a very low, flat tax because because most of the government's revenue comes from state-controlled energy resources. Um, you know, and and again, you know that again, that's kind of a libertarian policy, right? A flat tax. And thank you, Gleb. Thank you for the super chat. It's kind of a libertarian policy, right? A flat tax, but it's enabled by the fact that the state gets revenue from other things. If we nationalized our oil and gas, we nationalized banking, yeah, the tax burden would be largely taken off the public. So yes, I think taxes could ultimately be abolished um you know if you had the state running major industries the state running credit etc ah, origins of the pandemic and the u.s government's failure to hand it i addressed that in the opening right again COVID is absolutely real 
Um, but the U.S. government, uh, their response has been absolutely horrendous. And look, years from now, we're going to find out more and more details about it. How many times have they told us about the origin of AIDS? And it, first it came from monkeys, and then it came from this, and then it came from that. And, you know, who knows, right? Uh, who knows? But at the end of the day, look, the biggest capitalists have used the pandemic to their benefit. Um, you know, um, I've got questions about stuff and I'm not saying it on this stream. I'm not saying it on this stream because I don't want to get my channel channel taken down, but I've got questions. There are things I have legit questions about. I am not a doctor. Uh, I'm not a biologist. So if I get on here and start giving my opinion about biological stuff or scientific stuff, I'm inevitably going to say something wrong. And then I'm spreading COVID dis disinformation if I do that. Right. And they'll never let me forget it. And also I don't want to tell people inaccurate things. Right. I have a responsibility to all of you to only say things that I know to be true. I mean, I make a mistake every so often. If you're on here talking for two and a half hours, you're going to make a mistake, folks. But I, I like to correct myself when I make a mistake. So don't, you know, you're asking me the origins of the pandemic. Ask a biologist that. I don't know where COVID-19 came from. I mean, came from somewhere, obviously. Uh, look into the facts for yourself. Um, you know, and again, we'll probably hear new versions of those facts over the years. But anyway, folks. It's late. I'm out of Super Chats to answer. It's always been fun to talk to you. I'm going to do this again tomorrow night. Sorry for taking a week off there. I was just exhausted, went to a wedding. All right, folks. It's been fun. New upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. All right, folks. The danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared. But revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night. The danger of a new world war still exists. People of all countries must get prepared. But revolution is the main trend in the world today. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. Out of the movement to the masses. Out of the movement to the masses. Dare to struggle. Dare to win. Dare to struggle. Dare to win. We need a government of action to fight for working families. Dare to struggle. Dare to win. Out of the movement to the masses. The danger of a new world war still exists. The people of all countries must get prepared. But revolution is the main trend in the world today. Free Alex Saab. Free all political prisoners. Out of the movement to the masses. Dare to struggle. Dare to win. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. Good night, everybody. Good night.